0: There is a podcast that is a world unto itself.
1: A podcast as boundless as space and as timeless as infinity.
0: It is the place
2: between light and shadow. Science Science
1: and and superstition.
0: You've entered
2: the Fifth fifth dimension.
0: The latest series from the Consequence Podcast Network will open the door into Jordan Peele's new revival of the Twilight Zone, and it will go as far as the limits of the mind itself. Subscribe to the fifth dimension.
3: Consequence Podcast Network.
4: My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you wanna make love, then I do too and
2: constant listeners and welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast presented by the Consequence Podcast Network. You're probably saying, who the hell is that speaking into my ear right now? Mm. Well, guess what? I'm back, baby. And I'm better than ever. <laughs> <laughs> it's me, Justin Judd Crandall Gerber. Wow. He, how, well, I really came up with that on the spot too. You Pretty did. Good, huh? Totally. <laughs> a uh, constant contributor to Consequence of Sound. You can also hear me over at the Halloweenies. A Freddy Krueger podcast on this very same podcast network, yeah, but you know what enough about me let's let's go over to my right and and who who are you?
3: This is Mackenzie, the Micmac Wendigo mm. Gerber and uh, I'm excited to be back on the pod. It's been quite some time've we've, we've been having a lot of uh, interviews and, and some some great things, but uh, it's it's good to be back in the room. It's cozy, and I'm ready to talk about some some people that we just uh, unearthed.
2: Ooh good, Ooh, good transition, I but like I'll, I'll butcher your transition to say this joke. It's quite cozy in here. It is quite co- <laughs> Not really a joke, it's so much of an observation, but more importantly, once again, ahead of you, Mackenzie,
0: who is this that we're looking at? This is Michael Christopher Young
2: rothman oh, the composer
0: himself yes yes and that makes sense too because my middle name is christopher so it actually is slightly similar to my name uh editor-in-chief of consequence of sound and also constant contributor of this podcast halloweenies and the new fifth dimension a twilight zone podcast i keep piling them on and one of these days my head will pop but mm, i gotta like say excited. To talk about Pet Cemetery, but we have a fourth one here, right?
2: Allegedly, we do have a fourth person. <laughs> uh, who is there? Somebody on the phone right now?
4: Oh uh, yeah, this is Dan. Dead is better, Catherine, oh. all the way from Austin, Texas.
2: People always ask, like, who do I prefer more? Your wife Susan or Dan? I would say sometimes Dan is better. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, I like that some people ask that. Like, like who comes some, up to you and says, Hey, Justin? Hey, Justin, they pull me, they, they tug on my shoulder. Yeah. Justin, Damn seriously, Susan. you've known them for a long well, time. Who's better? <laughs> like a kid so in a newsie's outfit just comes up. Hey, hey, mister. Who's better?
4: Susan but, or Dan? Well,
2: I could have said most of the time Susan, but sometimes Dan is better.
4: Well, you know, people will ask me, they say, uh, they say Well, do you prefer to be called Daniel, Danny, or Dan? And I say, Sometimes Dan is better. Sometimes <laughs> him him. Or Danny.
3: Yes. And, and I and I I think Susan's better. <laughs> <laughs> well, back well we, that, that joke will be
2: uh, we will be able to unearth that joke later on after we bury it. So let's bury it now and say goodbye.
3: Uh, um,
2: but before we say goodbye to you, wonderful listeners out there, we're here to talk about the new Pet Cemetery twenty nineteen. That's right, the losers have finally seen it. Well, at least over seventy percent of us. Good old Dan saw it a little while back and has a nice review. If you'd like to read it, up on the consequence of sound website we're very happy for him there he gave it a a very very good review but uh, once again we're all gonna have a nice roundtable discussion on the film and as a bonus we'll be talking to the directors of the film Dennis Widmeyer and Kevin Kolsch after this very very pod Mike has spoken to them and we're looking forward to seeing what they have to say but before we get to the professionals let's get back to the the real heroes of the of the hour the critics (laughs) And let's dissect, vivisect, and uh, make sure Victor Pascal makes his way to the afterlife safely with our dissection of Pet Cemetery. What section should we, should we start off here? Uh, where do we usually go? Do we go to a, a government-funded building that has
0: books? <laughs> should we go to one of these buildings? Yes. What we, city, though, should I think we go we to? Could go, we could go to Bangor, but I think we're closer to
2: Derry. Derry, yeah. And Mike Hanlon runs someplace. Where does he run? What does he run again? I think he
3: runs a library.
0: Oh, the the Dairy Dairy Public Public Library. Library. (laughs) (laughs) Wow.
3: So ridiculous. so lame.
5: Oh,
2: God, Uh, that was so lame.
5: Mike Hanlon, if you see. Excuse me, sir. Do you have Prince Albert in a can? You do? Well, you better let the poor guy out.
6: (laughs) 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 Mike (laughs) (laughs) Hanlon said I had to go. (laughs) Did I have to get cleaned up? (laughs) Alex! Tell him. Yeah. Tell him. I'll see him tonight. Get up. Last chance, Get
7: up. Get
2: up. Now, for a lot of our adaptation episodes. They're one-offs. They've never been done before. Mm-hmm. They're not really remakes. This is one of those rare occasions where we have to talk about a remake. Yeah.
0: Of a very popular of film. If there, I mean, we talked about the remake of Carrie when we did the Carrie episode. Literally the first episode of the podcast.
3: Mm-hmm. But and this is exactly. the first uh, re- like, recent remake yeah. that we're covering, right? Other
0: than like It, but at the same time, that was really
3: that Well, was no, It. are no, right. It. it was a little yeah. different. Well, that though. was the first film of It. That's true. Yeah. And that's so this is the first remake of a Stephen King property, right? Well, that we're covering, like, live, like, as, as, yeah, as it comes out. Yeah, as it's out. happening, which that's is kind of interesting. interesting. Hmm. Well, it's you know, also quite perfect because uh, this book and this movie uh, have been buried for years. <laughs> and uh, now it, we're breathing a new life into it. I like to imagine that
0: Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Woodmire, when they were like, we'd like to do this movie, um, you know, Lorenzo uh, de Bonaventura was just like, all right, here's here's what we do, and he like you know gets a shovel, puts on boots, and then walks them up like a mountain.
7: And they they <laughs> dig up coat.
0: the VHS copy yeah. of the original Pet <laughs> Not even like a Blu-ray or DVD. Just there's, the a, there's a big stack of sticks and rocks. And they're like, <laughs> he's like, Not, didn't like what's we, this?
3: Didn't we have? A, and This is going way back. Didn't we have a battle? A who who would win on at the Micmac Barrow? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs>
0: and the VHS wins, oh and God. then we see the
3: VHS tape walk up the that's hill. That's right. That's right. Well, that's uh, that was a fun time, but a deep cut.
0: Look. This remake has been in development hell for over a decade. Well over a decade. Well over a decade. I recall this movie popping up in my feed in 2005, 2006 when George Clooney was attached. Mm Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of like went into hibernation, I guess maybe because Stephen King movies were just not the hottest property after The Mist, I, I guess. Think that's absolutely
2: what it was. It just – it went away. It wasn't like people were clamoring for it in 2008 saying, hey, where the, what the hell? Where's Pet <laughs> Cemetery?
0: <laughs> wasn't Good Night and Good Luck like literally in 2005 when he started getting... – Yeah, he was on a hot streak yeah. at that point. Yeah, so um, why I I the hell he would he would do have, this?
2: Unless he wanted to direct it as well. Dan – where were you in 2006 when there were rumors about George Clooney?
4: <laughs> oh, man. Well, if, if it was in the spring, I was probably graduating from college from Florida State University. And if it was in the fall, I was probably moving to Chicago. That's and, uh, and that's all. And, hey, moving to the original hometown of the Creed's, although not in this one because they're from Boston. But uh, but yeah, that was the most like boring piece of information ever. But yeah, <laughs> but you know information. I, I, I we... actually don't remember hearing about the remake too much back then. But, you know, it was a different time.
0: Well, it took four years for Paramount Pictures to finally be like, all right, look, uh, we want to do this. So it was like 2010, they had hired Matt Greenberg. uh, Oh, sorry. I love the idea
2: (laughs) of a Paramount (laughs) Pictures executive out of nowhere with no context, like a quietness of a meeting, talking about something else saying, we want to do this? (laughs) And then having them know. You talking about PS? I'm talking about PS. (laughs) We're going to do it again. We're going to bring it back. (laughs) <laughs> I'm sorry. I just thought that was pretty no. I think that
0: was great. Um, <laughs> Casual conversations. Yeah, yeah. No, he he's American screenwriter and best known for uh, working on uh, Halloween H two O and 1408. So he was yeah. used to you know King's Dominion, and so his story is still originally credited here.
2: Yeah, he gets the screen story credit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is very interesting. You don't see that a lot, especially no. when you're basing it on somebody else's work.
0: No, but the the actual screenplay went to Jeff Bueller. So
2: and Jeff Bueller has worked on a lot of. Interesting projects over the years as well.
0: He adapted the Midnight Meat Train, and Ah. I actually like the Midnight Meat Train. I think it's a
2: a a really fun horror movie. All right, I think
0: it works. Damn, (laughs) would you agree though that
2: Midnight Meat Train works far better as as in the short story form?
4: Yes. Um. Although I I do think the film is a little bit underrated, but I think most of the stories in the books of blood they're they're so high concepts. Like there's that one, Um. what is it? In the, in the hills, in the city. Oh, incredible. In the, yeah. They'll so never all, be able to like,
2: do it. They'll never be able to make oh, that into man.
4: anything. It's one of my favorite short stories of all time, but that's I think true. they're, just, and the problem is too, is Clyde Barker in the, in those books, he's very, um, impressionistic. He doesn't go to great lengths to describe anything. So I think a lot of it gets lost in translation, but I, I don't know. I don't hate Midnight Meat Train as a movie. I think it's like- Oh, it's fine. I just think that yeah. it's,
2: it's it's one of those cases that I've talked about so many times where it's so hard to adapt a short story because it's supposed to be a short story. And yeah. so it's tough yeah, to adapt exactly, yeah. to stretch it into 90 minutes. Matt, you've Midnight Meat Train, right?
3: Yeah, I, I, I thought it was okay. Um, I haven't read the short story though. So I much like I haven't read this book, the only Stephen King book next to Rage I haven't read yet. This is exciting. So I'll be bringing a very outside perspective to this episode.
0: Well, let's be fair; we're not really remembering the screenplay from Midnight Meat Train either. So, there's a lot of uh, <laughs> train. Train moves forward. Yeah. Train shakes. And and to be fair, his credits aren't exactly exemplary Uh, he was responsible for the prodigy earlier this year which was uh, not very good i didn't see that and
2: was he responsible for american pie presents the naked (laughs) mile
0: no (laughs) but that would probably be better than his other story which he did jacob's ladder which has been in development hell for i'll tell you what
2: that movie can go straight to hell the remake of that that doesn't yeah. need to be that doesn't need to happen
0: either it doesn't need to happen but he also did a story for ABC's of Death too and he also wrote for Night Flyers which is a TV series so not the greatest person to have in the helm especially when you're competing with oh I don't know Stephen King who adapted Ooh, the original one in 89 and
2: Stephen King has also worked on
0: oh Stephen King has worked on countless books uh, <laughs> you know the Fear Street ah, uh, oh, Goosebumps Fear Ball. Street, no, I'm just Fear Street. Hey the
2: Fear Street trilogy coming next year <laughs> can't wait Let's talk uh, about Kevin Culish and Dennis Widmeyer. Their only other feature film, at least wide-released, well-known feature film, is Starry Eyes, which mm-hmm. we've talked about on this show. It's a mean little film. It's Love Starry it, Eyes. It's very yeah. brutal. So we expected there to be a lot of brutality brought into this adaptation of to Pet I, and I, I – I, wasn't let down in that regard. I think no. it's it pretty brutal. But we'll, we'll get into the dissection of the movie itself as we go on uh, post background information.
4: Mm. Uh, real quick, also, uh, Starry Eyes, name of a Motley Crue song. And uh, <laughs> you can watch The Dirt on Netflix right you, now. Oh, All right, brother, here's a question. God. This is a
0: little bit of a tangent, Dan. I watched The Dirt <laughs> yeah. and I have admittedly been listening to Motley Crue again on Spotify. What songs, Mike? Mike? Oh, everything from um, Too Fast to too, Kill. Okay, so
2: basically, nothing. After you were born. <laughs>
0: <No>. <laughs>
2: okay, that's, that's acceptable. Although I do that's like that one song answer. that's
0: in the, the Stranger Things trailer. The "Dang Dang" uh, Home, Home Sweet Home? Home. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Home Sweet Home good. Gross Singing Tommy
2: it. Lee playing the piano is just uh,
0: well, disgusting. Well, I like to sing in the shower and – lately our boom box for the shower has been um dead because i haven't charged it mm. so sometimes i just go like i'm on my way i'm on my way like over and over again without even getting to the home sweet home part and sammy's like it's four o'clock in the morning she's like losing her mind every time i fucking <laughs> sing this right so oh God. but have you have you also been listening to yeah a
4: little bit well it's it's tough because i did not like that movie at I know, all i hated one- it the one scene I thought was pretty good was when they're rehearsing Livewire for the first mm-hmm. time, and I love that song. And so, I, yeah, just I just listened to Too Fast for Love, re-listened to it once. I mean, but you know, they were never a band I guess where I was super into their discography. I think they're a great hits band, and um, oh, I think Too Fast for Love Christ. is their their soul good album. But what do uh, you think
2: about their cover of Smoking in the Boys Room? <laughs> oh Jesus!
4: <laughs>
7: <laughs>
2: wow. Go, where did they get off? Speaking <laughs> of the dirt, well, hey, <laughs> speaking of Smoking let's in the Boys Room, sure that this isn't buried in the pet cemetery dirt because I don't want this band coming back to life anytime soon. <laughs> yeah.
0: That, and they did though. They, they retired in two, 2015 and then they came back three years They're later. They're actually the embodiment of the I mean, began. guys,
4: no joke, Nikki Six like literally died and came back to
0: life. <laughs> <Yeah>. Well, Dan, <laughs> I haven't heard
2: that shit. story ad nausea over the past twenty five years by Nikki Six. Can you tell me <laughs> some more about it? Every the time I go on diary. something, it's like you Nikki Six discusses diary? the the thirty fifth time he OD'd on heroin. I will, I will say Nikki.
0: the guy who plays Nikki Six is really hot in the movie. So um, they did a pretty good job in that respect. But
2: well, you know who doesn't play Nikki Six? Jason Clark. And he That's, was he is cast as Lewis Creed. Yep. And it's an
0: adaptation of Pat's Cemetery. And based on the casting of this film, it is a total upgrade for Woodmire and Kolsch. Because other than Pat Healy, I didn't recognize anyone in Starry Eyes. Nor did I, yeah. And I mean, it's just five years later after that movie. And that's a long wait in Hollywood. And when well, that, yeah. that movie was respected, there was a buzz around that movie. So I was wondering, like, why were they kind of absent for this long? And moment? well,
2: I think what happens a lot of the time with these filmmakers who make a big splash, as I speak like an industry asshole, uh, <laughs> is that I think they get promised a lot of things right off the bat or they really start hard on certain projects and they just fall by the wayside. Yeah. And then the Stephen King renaissance occurred, started occurring about two and a half years ago, and, and here we are. Yeah. You know, and, then and that's think,
0: only three years after Star Wars. Yeah. So that makes so sense. So that makes a
2: little more sense. And
0: honestly, the only other director that was attached to this previously was Juan Carlos Fezendillo.
2: Oh, he did he 28 did, Weeks Later, yeah, right? which
0: I actually really liked. Yeah, I really liked that movie so, a lot. Obviously, that wasn't the case. What are you the, gonna do? You know, hey, we got we got Wade Meyer Kolsch, and I'm pretty happy about it. because yeah, so. one of the things I really did like about Starry Eyes is the body horror mm-hmm. is, is fantastic, and the kind of slow burn, that sort mm-hmm. of chaos that ensues at the end. There's good pacing to it, and and with Pet Cemetery, that's kind of paramount. So, uh,
4: well, no
3: pun intended. Paramount Pictures also just throwing them. out there. I've also not seen Starry Eyes. Ah. So
4: I'm really coming from an outside perspective it's on It's on Amazon Prime, I think, right now. I think, I think it's on, on Shudder, right? Netflix,
2: Shutter, Netflix yeah. Amazon Prime. People, it's they want fin- you to see it.
3: It's at my fingertips. I didn't want it to silly my my uh, experience <laughs> tonight. I wanted to go in completely
4: completely blind. With fresh eyes, not fresh, Starry Eyes. Right. <laughs> I,
3: I even went back in time and erased everything I've ever seen uh, John Lithgow in. Wow.
4: Erase
7: from existence.
0: Oh, this is an interesting t- uh, tidbit. David Kashkinich, writer for The Terror and Blood Creek and also a Bigger Splash and Suspiria, was involved as an uncredited rewrite of this screen. Oh,
2: wow. So He's also the guy that didn't like the original Suspiria, who, re- who, did, who wrote the remake.
0: You weren't too much of a fan of it. No, the Dan,
2: Dan liked it a lot.
0: Yeah, well, here we go with this one. This will be interesting. We'll talk about our How Argento many reviews cast. reviews
3: before we get to I know,
2: I know.
0: We
3: do. <laughs> well,
0: we talked about the directors, we talked about the screenwriters. Christopher Young, oh Christopher Young. Well, I guess wait, wait. no.
2: Let's talk about the score. We yeah. don't actually have a. This is this is a special movie episode. We don't actually have a, a segment necessarily dedicated to the composer. Christopher Young is is responsible for some great great horror scores, specifically from the '80s. Hellraiser, great score. You know, it was his huge breakthrough on Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two: Freddy's yeah. Revenge, which I wasn't on the Halloweenies episode, no. but. I love the hell out of that score. I do
0: too. I think it's quite horrifying. Actually. I agree. The the way he uses the piano in that is fucking haunting. Yeah. And the piccolos the in the background, yep. the, the
2: the horns, kind of uh, yeah, terrific stuff.
0: Um, so I, I was I was pretty stoked that they got Christopher Young here, and I thought the score for this was pretty effective, actually. I, I would agree.
2: I thought it was a pretty. It was a non-invasive score, you know, and yeah. it wasn't too bombastic. I will say, I'm pretty proud of us. We are really sticking to just talking about the background of this film. We have not really. We've kept our our cards close to our chest, as one might say. Mm -hmm. We have not really discussed how we felt about the the movie personally. I think we should really start to get into the dissection of the film, because I've said dissection at least three times already during this recording. (laughs) So I'm done saying it. Let's get down to it. And what better way to start off than go to our category, Heroes and Villains. I'm
6: going to have to kill this fucking clown.
7: Welcome to the Losers Club, (laughs) asshole! (laughs)
2: Hey, we mentioned him earlier. Let's talk about Jason Clark in this movie. How do we feel about Jason Clark and the role of Lewis Creed?
4: All right, so I actually I love Jason Clark and was which which is the uh, second ape movie Don Don. The, Don the Planet of the Apes right yeah, Don Ape yeah Don Don Ape which I love. Um, I actually didn't recognize I, I didn't realize it was him when I watched the movie. And I mean that's a compliment because I think with Lewis Creed. He needs to have that everyman quality a little yeah. bit, and I felt like Jason Clark can buy that really well, while still making him interesting. Like I don't think Lewis Creed is like a uh, like a Jack Torrance in The Shining kind of character. You know what I mean? Mm, like no. I think I think like the more kind of low key and relatable he can be, the better. And uh, I thought I thought Clark did a great job, and hey, excellent accent work too because he's got that uh, Australian brogue in real life. Yeah, he's doing a good well, job of holding yeah. that, of keeping that in check. Mac, yeah, yes, think.
3: No, yeah, I, you know I love Jason Clark, and I felt like it was a step up. I felt like he really sold like the everyman, like you were saying, Dan. There were moments that didn't quite work for me, but it—I I wouldn't say it was Clark. I would say it was kind of pacing slash script stuff mm. later on. But I felt, you know, he always gives his all. He never phones it in, and I mm. really appreciate that. And you could tell that he was really invested. In the character.
2: Also, I'd say Jason Clark, best known for his role as John Connor in Terminator (laughs) Genesis.
3: Oh,
2: jeez. Did I I jump on that, Mike? That was totally going to make make a Genesis joke. Oh,
0: God. (laughs) All right. Sorry, Mike. Your feelings? No, honestly, I mean, they couldn't have captured him at a better time in his career. After Genesis, he literally went right into some of his biggest roles. Like, Chappaquiddick was huge for him. Mm-hmm. And First Bobby Man. Kennedy. Uh, I'm sorry, Teddy him, Kennedy. I apologize. He's Teddy Kennedy, That, yeah. Uh, w- with this, I think that he exudes some sort of acting chops that obviously Dale Midkiff doesn't have. What I love about Clark is that we actually get to have a little bit more time with him in certain situations. The 89 version, when, you know, Lewis has to go to the hospital, it's immediately right when Victor Pascal gets pulled in. You know, you don't actually get to see him interact with his colleagues. You don't get to see him kind of live in as a doctor. And I love that we get a day where nothing really happens. There's not hell on day one. Exactly. And I like that because you get to see a little bit more of his like human uh, capabilities, which I feel really come into play um, to be able to sell all the stuff that happens in the third act. You know, like Dan said, he's not Jack Torrance, but in this one, he does kind of have that sort of arc where there's a downward spiral to him.
2: Hmm. I thought it was interesting the choice he made because... Uh, we talked about Brotherhood which does take place in New England and he's got a very heavy Boston accent mm-hmm. New England accent in yeah. that but he did not go with it in this movie I think he maybe he just figured eh, it's just gonna be too distracting let me stick yeah, with yeah it.
3: it could have come up as too much of a like as a, like a caricature or something or maybe the rest of the, the cast like the kids and stuff it would be too hard for them to replicate that's so true just, they just said you know what just drop it And
2: they probably pulled him aside and said cut the shit Jason
3: <laughs> <laughs> well nobody has an accent like I mean Judd
0: doesn't have an no, accent they don't. you know I think you know
2: system. what we'll, we'll talk about lithgow later on but i think that might have been the wise decision in Mm -hmm. some ways but anyway but yeah so i think we're fans of jason clark and mike you talked to amy simons who plays rachel creed in this and another person i've been a fan of hers for a long time too she's been in a lot of the horror core the mumble gore as we like to call it yeah um she was in your next she was in the sacrament she She was was in alien covenant yeah one of dan's favorite movies. one of Dan's favorites
4: Hey, what can I say? I'm an alien head. I love it. I got <laughs> a big old tube xenomorph head.
2: What's, for me, what stood out, though, is, is her work behind the camera. She wrote and created the Steven Soderbergh adaptation, The Girlfriend Experience.
7: Mm-hmm.
2: I've only seen the first season with Riley Coe. Yeah. Really good show. Yeah. Uh, very intense, really well thought out. It's one of those things you didn't know how it was going to pan out as an adaptation, spread out over, I think it was six or eight episodes. It's really, really good. And she's also on the show as well. She's great. And she directed Atlanta, I think. She did. A couple of episodes of Atlanta. She so did. Yeah. She's making it happen for Incredibly herself. Incredibly talented. And I think it's pretty awesome that she got this. It's this is a big movie, so she got a mm-hmm. big role in a big Paramount movie. Probably making more off of this movie than she would make, you know, <laughs> writing or directing everything else. So it, it's not a paycheck movie, but per se, because I think she does a great job in it. Oh yeah, no, she's my favorite part of the film. Yeah, me. I think this is another instance. Once again, I hate to denigrate the 1989 version in any way, but I do think performances across the board are superior. Well, with with one exception. But I think, once again, Amy Simons is a, is a stronger performance here.
4: Well, I was going to say also, too, I think this this script, this time around, does a better job of tying her fears about death and yeah. her experiences with Zelda to directly to the plot of the movie, much like the novel does. I feel like we lose a little bit of that in the, in the old film. Like, I feel like in this we get more of... We really understand why she doesn't want to tell her kids about death right off the bat, and I know obviously Zelda's was a thing in the old film, and they talk about it, but I, I it, just her role in general felt more tied to the, the overall theme and plot this time around, more so than like just being the wife, which is to me somehow uh, sometimes how Rachel feels a little bit in the eighty nine one. And once again, I love the eighty nine film, not to disparage it.
2: Mac, your comparison—I know you haven't read the book, but your comparison between her performance and the eighty
4: nine. Yeah, I bit. mean,
3: I definitely felt like we got to explore this character more. Mm-hmm. There was definitely a lot. Just more time spent with her, um, so I appreciate that. And yeah, I I forgot that she was in all those movies that you listed. And that's <laughs> that's crazy, and that's awesome that she's doing all that. But yeah, I thought generally she was better. I I it was an improvement on the character and the way they handled the Zel- some of the Zelda stuff was interesting. I wouldn't say better, but it was it was well, fun. Here, Let's talk my, about
2: that a little bit. Can we talk about Zelda a
0: little bit? Yeah. My thing is, I think Rachel has a far more expansive role in this. And at, at one point in this film, she literally becomes a protagonist. It's almost a two-hander town. between yeah. her and, and Jason Clarke. And my problem is, and one, one of the things I will give the pro to the 89 one is that, yes, they do deal with a lot more of her Zelda issues and everything, but it's far more explicit. The inferences of... Denise Crosby's fears with Zelda and death were far more natural mm. in the 89 one than they were here. They literally saying, like, I know you have a problem with Zelda. Whereas in the other film, they just allow her to tell the story and we make the connections ourselves. Having said that, the agency that Rachel has in this movie over the, the 89 one is just, it's like night and day. There's hope for her. I thought that she might even get out of there. And I, yeah. I think it's, it's
2: one of many cases where it's a tough one because the Zelda performance in the 89 version is so memorable. Yeah. It's iconic in many ways in the horror field, and I think they were really cognizant in trying to not repeat anything that you see in that movie. Yeah, a lot of the Zelda horror is extreme close-up. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is. Um, I actually like the whole knocking on the roof. Where no matter where they are, you hear that knocking on the roof. I liked that suggestion. It almost became a ghost story in that regard. Mm-hmm. And you're going, and it's just it's just a woman who's got the condition. They're not trying to make it surreal with another man playing Zelda in that regard. Yeah.
4: To. And they also added the uh, the extended dumb waiter bit, which I actually thought was pre- hey, which uh, we last saw dumb waiter horror in Halloween H two O. That is true. Uh, yeah, but, but yeah, no, the, yeah, there, there. I was kind of waiting for like a big reveal moment of Zelda, Zelda, like they had, and they didn't really have one yet. And I think that is because they didn't they wouldn't shy away from showing her face or, like, having her try and move like the the actor does in, in that original. Um, and I still think Zelda was scarier in the original, but I don't know how you could have topped that, you know what I mean? Exactly. Like, I, I seriously... I was trying to think of like ways they could have topped that and like i just i don't think you can so i i, I was a fan of how they did but what, what were you gonna say justin I interrupted you
3: well, i think mac was gonna say something well no yeah i i agree dan i think that the original was scarier and and maybe i'm just maybe i'm just tied to that first time i watched it as a kid and you know those those scares are always going to be the best but uh but i did enjoy the dumbwaiter stuff i thought they they tried to do something completely different so i, mm-hmm. I didn't know what was going to happen and so i was like ready for those scares and that was fun my favorite difference, honestly, is something that they never really get to play into, even in the book,
0: is the fact that Rachel has the fear of becoming Zelda. It kind of remind me of like Nightmare on Elm Street almost.
2: I think you sacrifice Zelda as the big scare, mm-hmm. but I do appreciate that in this version, instead of Rachel servicing the Zelda storyline, Zelda is now servicing the Rachel storyline. Yes. And I think that's exactly. a huge yeah, difference. Exactly. And I, that, in that regard, it's an improvement. So there's pros and cons really to be taken with the whole scenario. Yeah, I, I, I've got pros and cons throughout the entire movie, honestly. Yeah. I, yeah. I was constantly going back and forth between either, oh, I like this, or I like this more than the other movie, to, oh, I don't like this, I don't like this as much as the other movie. And that's the problem. when You're making the second adaptation of a very great book, a very well-known book, and you're also making a remake of a very well-beloved movie. Yeah. You know? So it, it's a tough call for the, for the directors. Mm. Let's move on to one of the great actors. Church the Cat. No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love Church the Cat. We'll get into Church. church. We'll get into Church, but let's talk about John Lithgow playing the role of Judd Crandall in this particular version. Once again, opted to not go with the accent, and I think that was the right decision, mm-hmm. because that accent is so tied to Fred Gwynn's performance in, yeah. in Pet Cemetery that every sentence, every, every special for every well-known phrase for that matter, yeah. you would have constantly been reminded of. Fred Gwynn or comparing it to Fred Gwynn?
4: Especially the Sometimes That Is Better line. They parodied that on South Park several times over, you know what I mean? And I feel like once you go – once you go down that road, like, I mean, I'm doing it now. You know, you can't (laughs) – I think going with the more naturalistic tone overall for Judd was really smart. And and also as great as Fred Gwynn is – I mean, I love his performance. I mean, it's it's pushing the line of caricature a little bit, you know, Um, which I don't think would have worked tone-wise for this movie. I mean, I love Fred Gwynn. Once again, iconic, but like, I I think that was a performance of a certain time and of a a certain place.
0: He's going to pull a Victor Pascal on you tonight, Fred Gwynn. You're gonna see his ghost at the edge of your door, Dan, and just be like, "You don't, you don't <laughs> like my performance,
4: Dan." But he's, no, he's dressed not... as like the judge from uh, my cousin Benny. He's like not even dressed <laughs> oh, as a judge. Like, oh, well, Fred Wayne beards?
2: also was was killed by a driver, a drunk driver. Was he really? No, but that. Oh my pretty, god! Oh, uh, <laughs> Pretty funny. You no, know, it's Jeez. not sad. It Didn't actually happen that way. It's, yeah, it's just old age. It's is a fun gag. He's doing fine in the afterlife, as yeah. we learned. There, I believe there's an afterlife, like like Rachel
3: says. Mac- I I thought I thought look, God did a good job. Um, it's hard. It's hard. It's such an iconic role to take on, but I think that he, you know, he did his own thing with it. And what I felt with this movie was that it was very, very like uber realistic, like in terms of the family dynamics and the actual people living in this town, it felt very now. And so for me, that's, why some of the like intense insane horror stuff like her remembering Zelda and the way her body was it it, it was almost it almost didn't fit for me mm. um the body horror in that regard didn't quite Yeah work. and but I liked that Lithgow was kind of really the only like really well known person in this you know mm. I don't know. I'm like I'm so back and forth with this movie. I'm still like trying yeah. to like wrestle it, with it. It's, it's really hard. It's just yeah. an hour
2: since we left. You're getting here. a fresh. take. Most of the time when we're talking about these movies or books, we've experienced them over the like yeah. 20 years. Yeah. You know, it's always tough to get right into the review. Or so this is why it's more of a roundtable discussion. So yeah, it's
3: just strange motive stuff in this movie that and and with the original too. And, and again, this is my fault because I haven't read the book that I just don't know if I buy it. I think like, the book.
2: Look, it's almost impossible to direct a faithful or great adaptation of a great book because with a book like *Pest Cemetery*, you can pace things out, you can spread things out, you can you can build more of a relationship between characters. And that's the thing. And in the movies. You, you kind of have to cut all that down. You have to accelerate things.
4: I will say like I, I think the acceleration for me in this movie actually helps the case a little bit because for me it always feels a little ridiculous in the book when Judd tells Lewis so much about the cemetery and kind of goes on and on about it and then they still – he still brings him to to do each thing, to you know bury each body. I almost feel like when it's sped up and it's sort of done more through the acting and you see like John Lithgow deliberating it in his head, it feels a little more real to me. Like like it's almost like the more centralized and pared down it is, we don't have as much time to think about it. So that, that actually worked for me quite a bit, like more like more so than the book. When
2: it comes to the acceleration, I actually liked how they pushed the Zelda storyline to the forefront. I mean we're getting that story right away yeah. because they don't want that to be the thing that everybody's waiting for. Because, you know, I think we would have been disappointed if they were just going to wait once again until the hour mark and say, here's a Zelda story and and not have it be as impactful as the yeah. 89 version mm-hmm. but go ahead mike sorry
0: the weirdest thing about this movie is that i never really get the sense that judd and lewis are friends at all yeah. whereas in like the original one they come across in the same way that they do in the novel where he is a family friend he is very close to lewis and that they both need each other for that male compadre, uh male bonding it, it was just so cold between them and i think it works for this movie but at the same time i don't know if the impact is as hard-hitting is when you, when you see what happens to him later on. It's like they didn't earn that friendship, and mm-hmm. they do earn that in the original one. And so, and that's that's a hard thing for me because the the death of Judd is like such a integral part of the book, also, and the movie, the original, um, the original movie. movie too. So it, in this one, it just kind of felt like, well, we need a victim. And
2: well, I thought something else was going to happen. I thought that he was going to be taken to the pet cemetery well, and brought back to life, yeah. which does not happen. <laughs> Mac, you want to say something? Else?
3: Well, I was just gonna say in terms of the runtime of the first movie versus this. It's 101 minutes
2: for the the 2019 version. Uh, and it is 103 minutes for the 89 version. Wow, so it's so only so a couple that, minutes longer. So it's long. very
3: strange because I felt like this and I usually I'm like, oh give me get me in and out of these mo- of these horror movies because if you spend too much time, but I felt like so much of this of this story would be served by a longer movie. I mm-hmm. think that cuz you could dive in a little bit more to the relationships so that when things start happening you really care about these people whereas I just didn't feel as connected as I wanted to be when even when like Ellie gets, oh, yeah, gets killed. I know. And I think that's why for me the original movie twist or not twist but with Gage and the how the book is it's better mm-hmm. because it doesn't matter if we spent a lot of time with him or developed his character. It's a baby, you know, yeah, being killed and then brought back. So, well, it was. It's horrifying in that first film, and and, and if it happened in this movie, it's so. I mean, not not to downplay a nine year old's death either. That's awful, but like I think because it, it, there's an innocence that's just. It's just she's so innocent that I just felt like that it was more impactful uh, right off the gate. And it, it, even though we didn't spend a lot of time creating that character. So I don't know. For me, it, it, I felt like that that worked better in the original film rather than this one. Mm-hmm.
2: I have some similar thoughts. I'll share in a in a future s- section here. But let's talk about the Jete Lawrence. Did I say that right, Dan? You talked to her.
4: It, yes, it was because I thought it was Jetty, and then the publicist said no, was jeté, and I was glad. I did yeah, that, I saw the accent. I was, like a fool. Yeah. Well, I'll be honest. <laughs> I,
2: I've been watching a lot of Criterion films from the from France, and okay. they, I've been uh, noticing the pronunciation of Jete.
4: Yeah. Oh yeah, and you, um, I bet you read a lot of Kierkegaard. Sorry, I, I, sorry,
2: Dan, I was patting myself on the back. I apologize. <laughs> I, I hear what you said. I thought she actually did quite a good job in this. I and did too. I I, I liked the Ellie performance in the original one, but this feels like once again, I don't want to throw any shade, as the kids say, but I felt like this was a professional actor mm-hmm. in this movie, you know, and she obviously was given a lot to do and a lot more to do, yeah. than Ellie yeah. was in the '89 version. And this is let's, start, let's you want to talk about some of this twist now. Because yeah, you yeah, might as well.
0: Everyone who's listening to this
2: has already seen the movie. I have been raging against trailers for a long time now, but I can only imagine how pleased Widmeyer and, and Kolch were when they were filming this sequence and thinking we are really going to shock the hell out of everybody. Yeah, because you see Gage run into the road, Lewis actually saves him as he as he talks about in the book and the movie, um, imagining he actually does yes. pull him back from the truck and so you get that wait what and then to have the truck kill ellie it was it would have been so shocking paramount just couldn't resist they had to show
0: a dead kid walking around the trailer and- i cannot believe they did that and there's been so much fucking backpedaling by like so many horror writers and so many producers and so many other people that are like well it doesn't matter what's spoiled in the trailer it uh, matters if it was yes, just her walking in the street exactly. and the
2: truck hits her that's fine yeah but when we know the truck hits her and we know the truck doesn't kill gage yep. you are now diluting the suspense of that scene i'm I sorry 100 100 it's nothing against the filmmaking itself this is, this is about the promotion right.
3: no. of the film. and the thing that's sad about that is is i i, I never watched the trailer for this and I still knew that, <laughs> it was that all because it was all over the place. You couldn't, because everybody was talking about it and yeah. it was like, you know what? Everybody might be talking about it, but when they watch the movie, it's going to be less effective. Yeah. And so it was. Congratulations. You got a lot of people into the movie theater. I mean, you've made your money, but the, the quality of the product suffered and it's not going to be remembered as no, much as it would I,
0: have been. I a hundred percent agree. Like I, I don't, I didn't feel any impact from that scene. And I, a lot of it also comes down to the fact that it's a little too over the top. You know, one well, of the things like that
3: slow-mo yeah. of, of watching like the tanker thing, like, you didn't need that. I, no, I, you didn't even need. To see, you didn't need to see any of that. You, you, I think him saving Gage and just hearing it, yes. and him knowing, they should have just stayed on Jason Clark. But I did like the twist. I mean, because then I was like, yeah, wow, well, what are they going to do? And like, well, she's going to be able to really do something with it because she's obviously an older actress mm-hmm. and can talk and like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. rather than this like little baby.
4: My favorite thing about the twist, the twist, and I feel like the thing everyone keeps writing about is, oh, well, it's it's scary because she's more aware of everything and she can do more physical stuff than Gage could, which is true. But I actually thought the creepiest scenes were when she came back and Lewis tries for about a day to still have kind of a normal relationship with uh, her, yes, when and he, we see uh, him like he's
2: brushing her hair in the bathroom. Oh god, oh, it's a great, laying like, in bed with to- her
4: because because she actually asks him like deep questions about death and sort yeah. of contradicts what he told her about death before and i know that, that that doesn't have to do with traditional horror or jump scares but for my money that was the most unsettling stretch of the movie yeah, absolutely. and that was, was doing something part that, of the movie, for yeah sure. and like yeah. that was that was making a change from the source material and then doing something that neither the source material nor the previous adaptation had done and i haven't seen that successfully completed a lot of horror movies. So like that, I, that was, I I was like, that was, that to me was like the, the big shock, like the big payoff of the twist, not just like the fact that an eight year old could be more active than a, than a dead two year old or whatever. So that
3: was my whole thing with that switch is that, that when they started doing that stuff with her coming home and the bathtub and all that, and just like laying in bed with your dad and it was really unnerving because you know, this isn't Right. Something is off, something is wrong. And I think spending more time and you have an actress that can clearly pull that off. And it was going in this really creepy direction. But it what's not creepy to me is like where she took the role after mm-hmm. that, where it was just like killer kid. It's just not like like scary kids are done, y'all. Yeah. Like <laughs> I gotta you say, know, like that is like- not that doesn't do it for me. And but and I think that's why if they had gay gauge would have worked better in that sense, because it's, it's, it's almost too young to be scary. That's why it's so scary. Yeah. And that's why that first movie works so well. And you, you only see him just here and there, but it's just, it's, it works. And so I really loved when she first came back and I wish there was more of that, Dan. I mm-hmm. wish there was more that's, of them well, just but, trying to kind of live a life like that. I, I agree. Um, even if it was for mean, a couple of couple more days or something, And then just but then things just are off and she just slowly kind of reveals like things aren't right. You know, um, or like Gage is like put into danger because she's there. You know what I mean? Like I thought like that was going to happen a little bit more right out the gate, but I forgot that Gage and the mother are away. I mean, way.
2: the movie zips along. It wasn't like I was bored by any means. Right. I could have used another. I know this is me saying this. I can't believe it, but I could have used another 20 minutes. I could have. Like I would have been yeah. fine. Like you said, Mac, if there was actually a full day after Rachel comes home and she's trying to adjust to it and they're trying to bring back the domestic life. I would have been much more fascinated with that as opposed to just having it all end on that night. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because I feel like they kind of set it up really nice when it's just Ellie and Lewis. I thought maybe they would try to carry
0: that over. And then the next day have the... the Yeah, they don't depart enough in that scene. It's, It's almost like in a way they pull their punches a little bit because they still lean heavily on... That climactic ending of the book And the original film It's mm-hmm. like well you need to have Rachel freak out So then she can be killed And then you need to have Judd come over And inspect everything But really like why couldn't we have had one whole day Why couldn't we actually have it Where we kind of bask in the weirdness of it all Yeah, Like let that happen and, But again that would be something that you'd see Probably like in a European film <laughs> Or so, like it's like an an the Descent film. cut yeah. or something like that. Exactly, you know? like, like the you birthday cake at the end. Yeah, you, you, you're not going to see that in a mainstream blockbuster
4: movie. I mean, the the for well, I don't know. I like I feel like I'm an advocate for the speed at the end because what it sort of does for me is that I love the old movie, but I feel like the mo- old movie gets so miserable by the end of it. The book does too, and I. <laughs> I kind of loved how they were literally able to kill, like in a way have more deaths in the movie and like have an even darker ending than the book uh, the book in the previous adaptation, but it somehow felt more fun. And I don't know, maybe that makes me- No, sick I, I think that fun. there was some yeah. definite
2: <laughs> gallows humor here. And I think there's some deliberate yeah. humor here too. Yeah. I think the scene where they're lying in bed and it's really awkward. I mean, I was kind of giggling, but I felt like, that was the intention there's to get uncomfortable. Yes, yes, Mac, exactly, 100%.
3: Yeah.
2: As opposed to, I think the original, a lot of people giggle at some of the stuff. But I think a lot of that's because it's just a little dated. It's not because of a failure True. by any means.
0: Right, yeah.
2: Um. And, you know, let's talk about briefly, but speaking of humor that I didn't appreciate in the 1989 version, uh, let's talk right. about uh, Here we go. Absa Ahmed as Victor Pascal, who is, there's no jokes to be made in this version of Pet Cemetery. Uh, Mike, I know you're a huge advocate for Pascal in the 89 version. I I am. And I
0: thought that this Pascal was a total afterthought. And I thought there was, other than his gruesome wounds, I thought he was absolutely useless in this movie.
2: Yeah, I didn't really get a real presence from this particular character. I mean, looking back at the book, he doesn't say a lot in the book either.
0: He does But they still
2: have him pop up a lot here without feeling like he had to be there. You know what
3: I mean? Because he's
2: not really telling Rachel
0: to go home. no.
2: It's you know? this,
3: well, it's a strange thing where he, he, you know, he says the whole, like, you know, like you tried to help me, so I'm going to try to help you, and and I that's the only thing I could hang on to as as to why he's still sticking around, why he's really trying to help the family. The thing is, like, you have Brad Greenquist who's so explicit with all his ominous
0: warnings and his dialogue there. I I, I like you know the what? reveals I that they have a Pascal. I think those are really effective and creepy. And that sequence in the basement when when Lewis goes down there. Oh, is, let's save that I want to talk about parts. that in the cemetery section, but definitely. Like, but honestly, like, I just thought that the Pascal's character itself was just such a letdown. I, I thought that they could have done so much more with it, and I felt they were so afraid of it becoming, like, this comical thing. But here's the thing, like, again, if you want to talk about Gallo's humor, like, that is all what Pascal is in that 89 one, and he's this for me, it was always that that sort of dark, Levity that allowed things to get miserable because he was kind of like, well, I know everything is going to shit, and I couldn't stop anything, and so and that was something I got in the book also. So hmm. I don't know. I didn't, I
3: didn't, I didn't per se. I didn't love this Pascal, but I didn't love the last one. The last one felt like like a cut scenes from Frighteners or something. Uh this Arlie Ermie shows up. Like I thought like when we first see Pascal when and they pull him in to the to the school house, the school um you know where where they're treating him, it was a little jarring. You're like, Oh Jesus, like this great is makeup. disgusting. The makeup's great. Yeah, the sequence. makeup is great. And I thought that was really creepy. And then they you know, again, they were doing something completely different than the first one. You know, he he played it dead serious the entire time. So it was like, you know, it was a risk, but yeah. Did- I, I I didn't I didn't really have an issue with that I I thought it was fine but I I never really liked that character slash idea in the original anyways because I just didn't underst I just didn't think it was a strong enough connection to um uh, to Lewis that that merited f- going all the way through I've, it should have just been like a, a ghost or, or something else you know, something else not not his but ghost. but even
0: the way that 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 they have him do the ominous warning to him in the hospital is so emblematic of the type of horror that I hate nowadays where it's like in the original one all he does is grab his arm and he's just like the barrier can't be crossed and then he says his name and it is so fucking realistic in that sequence and in this one he's like Lewis is doing his files the lights go down and then all of a sudden (laughs) it just felt so ceremonious to me that's why I kind of love about the original one is that there are these sort of weird gasps of reality that kind of are creepy. And and I think that
3: first scene works in the original with Pascal. I I don't like all the like Hey, this, the, the roads act that way. you know he all, weird, all that weird <laughs> shit. That, nah, he does a ton of no. shit like that. I'll drive. It's, or... it pulls, he never it, says I'll drive. Pulls you, pulls you right out of the movie every time. And I'm like, oh, God, like just let it be miserable. Like I don't, yeah. need, Come the on, comi- Doc. I don't need the comic relief over here Dan, ruining the suspension here.
2: Dan, Pascal 2019 or Pascal 89, make your case.
4: Oh, man, Pascal 2019 for sure. I oh, mean, here's my God. thing. I, I don't I don't need Pascal to do a bunch. Like, yeah. he's a device for me. He, I mean, he's there to get Lewis to the cemetery. He's not even – I wouldn't even call him the equivalent of a spiritual guide. He literally just shows him the place. I, and, I mean, this is just going to be a matter of taste, but I, I like the Pascal sequences in this one a lot better because of their surrealism. You well, know, the really yeah, I want to definitely save that
2: for the, the cemetery section because I've got some positive yeah. notes on that. I think that they're – there could have been something else done between that dynamic between Pascal and Gage. Mm-hmm. He, I, I think oh, yeah. that was kind yeah. of eerie when he would look over his mother's shoulder and Pascal's just that. standing there. I don't know how much more of that you could have done. I liked it in the car when you see in the reflection he's just sitting next to him in the car ride. And it, I I felt like there was something more that could have been done. I cannot put I my finger on like it. there's a deleted it. scene. I like think there's, so, the like there's a lot of like deleted him. scenes in this. I feel like... I almost want to watch the trailer again to see if there was even more that, I'm we, sure that was there cut was. out. But yeah.
3: yeah, that's another character uh, that we haven't talked about yet, Gage.
2: Well, listen, do we even want to give this kid's name out?
7: <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, oh, I mean, Hugo, Hugo Lori. Twi- I'm sorry, Hugo
2: Lavoy. I apologize. Hugo Lavoy and Lucas Lavoy. Um, Miko Hughes. Hmm, kind oh. of similar wow
4: well, here, here's the thing man. I, I thought they were good you're, you're not going to get another Mika Hughes like, no it's no no,
2: not no I thought the kids guess. did in no, this I movie I thought the really kids good, did yeah. exactly what they had to do exactly. the, the two actors I thought he was I, agree, cute, yeah. I thought he was a cute little baby who has some really adorable lines so he's a cute little kid and I think the ending is really Great. really fun love, love the ending with um, that kid just looking at his family coming back and his his dad who earlier said no, do not open this door for anybody but me and he knocks on the doors ugh Anyway, but we'll, yeah. we'll save that for the cemetery, I mean, cemetery it's, like,
4: it's sort of a happy ending. I mean, they all end up together. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll talk I about guess. it, if that's yeah, happening yeah. or not. Well, the sequel is
3: just a straight comedy where he's, he's now living with the family. They haven't killed him, and he's just living with that family.
2: It's called Buried in the Pet <laughs> Cemetery.
3: <laughs> well, this is actually a very small cast. There really aren't a lot of other people in this, right? I mean, we've
2: got Alyssa Brooke Levine, who we mentioned earlier, plays Zelda. I think we talked about Zelda quite a bit. Yeah. Of course, we've got Upset Student. Played by the great Naomi Fournette, she's the one that comes rushing in and says, Oh, there was a car." Yeah, that's a good <laughs> job. Um, she hey, she she sold me. Yeah, I believe that yeah. somebody I believe was that hit by someone a car. got
3: hit by a car. Yeah,
2: a very small cast, but um, are we about to move? Oh wait, I apologize. We can't move on yet. We are
7: gotta we're talk about
2: right? the cat with the most. Babe. Oh my God, I love Church in this, <laughs> and Church is very great. cute. I loved the lack of CGI. I mean, yeah. there is there is some CGI, but it's not noticeable. And they really did rely heavily on using an actual cat. Yeah. And cats are impossible to live with, let alone train. Yep. So I, I don't know how they pulled some of this stuff off. I
0: love this cat.
2: This yeah. was a
3: very memorable church. I really liked him. It's so cute time. when it's when
4: he's just like laying on the
0: bed in the beginning. And yeah.
4: What a fluffy when, cat. And they, and they also did the thing, and this goes back to what we were saying with Ellie, because in the book when – when the people come back from the cemetery, they're not vicious and cruel at first. They're sort of just off. And then, you know, they, they get set off pretty much. I like that with church also that because in the old one, in the old movie, he's kind of awful from the get go. Whereas in this one, it's like, yeah, he's kind of trying to be normal, but he's just not good at it. And, and I love that he played a role in Ellie's death. I thought that was a really I, that was cr- when, when
2: he drove yeah, all yeah. the way away and the cat still just shows back up. I like how the cat, I apologize. The cat doesn't just show up. The cat. You see the cat walking, walking home, like it knows how to get home. I yeah. thought that was effective. Which is really done. creepy.
4: Yeah. Love yeah, church loved, in this. Loved, loved, church. loved
2: every moment of church in this. I'm happy, you know what? I'm happy church lives. Who, in this uh, who too. played? I well, that.
4: He does. Yeah. Hey, church wins. I would say he's yeah. the winner. He um uh he was played by several different kitties. Right. This was not a one a one cat job.
2: I well, several cats were hit by a wrinkle trucks, so they <laughs> had to keep... Uh,
0: <laughs>
4: it was a Milo and Otis
0: situation. They just kept, like, throwing new cats.
2: Well, it's funny. They kept throwing the cats off the cliffs of wherever they shot this just because the they Mic- wanted to. Oh, they at want the
3: Barrow Barrowground, they
0: Mic-
2: just kept Ma- throwing
3: them over the corner. They're like, it
2: works. No, this isn't And a you know what? We've made several insensitive jokes about the Micmacs, but however, if you noticed, I don't believe Mi'kmaq is mentioned at all in this film.
3: It's on the book. It's, the um...
2: Bank. It's it's like gold pond or something like that. God's Has,
3: little swamp or something. Like that, or little
2: little little God swamp, swamp or something. Or something. Yes, yeah, like, yeah,
0: yeah. But honestly, the book that he's holding, though, I think says Micmac uh, on there. Yeah. But
2: they do a pretty good job of avoiding falling into that that trope, which a lot of people feel is you know insensitive. So they imagine yeah, the
0: tribal grounds. Yeah, yeah
2: they just yeah. they try to make it more of a historical thing, as yeah. opposed to just saying, "Hey, there's some crazy Indians burying people over here." Listen, we've we've given some pros. And we've given some cons. But let's lean a little bit more into the cons in our next section, which we call Nightmares and Dreamscapes. If you think your dreams are disturbing,
7: (laughs)
1: imagine the nightmares of Stephen King. What are you, some sort of a
5: horror movie guy? No,
2: Clyde, I'm a literary guy. Dan, you know what? Dan, I think you like this more than all of us. You gave it an A minus. What would you say... Docked it, the letter grade you would have given if you were to give it an A. Like, what what didn't you quite like about this movie? What didn't work for you?
4: Honestly, the only thing I can really think of, and I, I really, yeah, you're right. I, I did love this movie. Um There, it's weird because the truly scary mo- uh, moments in the film did not rely on jump scares, but there still were a few jump scares. And you yeah. know what? I don't, even, I don't even think they they were like proper jump scares. But this is a big pet peeve of mine in modern horror movies. They whenever the thing came out, they added, you know, really intense string music or some whooshing sound to make them a jump scare. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? There's yeah. just like, I mean, and it, it it wasn't egregious by any means, but, um, there were a few times like that and I guess because the movie was scary enough for me, like, ah, we, don't, we could just do without those, you know? So that, that would really be my only, my only criticism. And that's a pretty minor one at that. But, uh, what about the rest of y'all?
0: I really didn't like some of the set designs. There was a lot of stuff that was shot on location, obviously. I mean, the, the, the two houses and, and whatnot, but I never really got a sense of place like mm-hmm. I do with the the '89 version. What I really love about the '89 version, I'm, and I'm sorry, I keep hampering on this, but it's a, it's, that, inevit- it's inevitable. We're inevitably going to compare the yeah. two. It's inevitable. But there are so many great establishing shots in the '89 ones, and some of my favorite moments are even like towards the end when they kind of revisit Judge's speech and they just show these like really gorgeous portraits of like the house and the moon and the forest. And but by the end of that, you really do have this sense of place in your head. And this one. I got a sense of the house a little bit, but God, whenever they went to the woods with all this smoke and nothing felt natural to me. And especially when they got up to the Micmac burial ground, there wasn't any fear to it because it just felt like I was, they were like in a, you know, a sound stage with like a green screen in the background and there's yes. like the lightning and they, they, it looks literally like the set from like Army of Darkness when Ash is just looking at the three books and he's trying to figure out which one is which. And
3: I think that's even scarier.
0: And that, and that is actually it's scarier. And that's, than,
2: you know, <laughs> cute. Yeah. And that's yeah, supposed
0: yeah. to be cute right. and yeah. funny and you know we got that really great overhead shot in the original one and it's daylight when they go there too mm. and it's just i don't know it just for me like the whole naturalism of this movie just got kind of zapped in like the, yeah. all the wrong places
3: yeah i would say i didn't appreciate the the weird i, I know sometimes it's cheaper to do the CG effects instead of, you know, let's get a fog machine out there and crank it for <laughs> yeah. two hours. Hold the red try to, And to hope that it picks up on camera or whatever. But, you know, it's, and maybe we we just watched too many movies, but some of the time some of the moments where they're walking through the forest, it was just like just too CG for me. It didn't feel like they were actually in that forest. Mm -mm. And because they
2: weren't, I mean, there's times where you could tell that there was absolutely a green screen behind them with the big backdrop. I just don't.
3: Yeah. Just so that just, that didn't quite work for me. Um, I didn't, as soon as Ellie became like full on uh, back from the dead, I'm going to kill and smash everything in the room. Kind of just like uh, upset child. (laughs) I it just didn't it she didn't work for me. I thought she did a really good job. I think the actress is really good mm-hmm. and to pull that off and be that serious and do some of the things that she was doing. I thought she sold it really well. It just for me personally it it wasn't scary. It just wasn't scary enough she was talking too much. If you'd taken 80% of of her dialogue from when she comes back away after the the normal day of mm-hmm. trying to live with jason clark as soon as she started to really turn i wish there was just not a lot a lot of taunting and talking because it just it just fell flat for me mm-hmm. it just wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't scary it was just kind of like a little girl saying things like you know you bitch or or whatever <laughs> and that okay. just that doesn't scare me it doesn't feel like oh this it's weird coming out of this little girl's mouth because honestly this these days you see that shit all the time in in, in movies or whatever. So it's just just like, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't love that. Um, Although I, I, you know, I did like, I did like the twist. I wish it was more of a surprise, but I just, I wish there was a little bit more of her being, in the shadows, I think it would have been a little creepier. You know, like even that moment where she's standing behind the, the, the door looking and then she kind of just moves away. Hmm. Just more stuff like that where just something is off with this little girl. I mentioned for me,
2: I go back and forth with this movie on almost like moment by moment because in a lot of ways, the last third is my favorite part of the movie, mm-hmm. but it's also the most frustrating part of the movie. Yeah. Um, I, I think if you were just to tell me what happens in the last third, I would have thought, oh, this is unbelievable. This is unbelievable. But it's like I said, I just needed another day yeah. with that reunion. I needed one more day because everything seemed really rushed in an effort to get to that, what I still think is a really f- cruel <laughs> final ending. Yeah. I, I think the ending still works for me. I agree. Yeah. Um, if anything, it saves a lot of the issues I have with the, with the third act. I just wish there was a little more time spent with the family, with the new family dynamic. That's my biggest pet peeve with the movie. Um, I think there, it gets a little expository at times, and yeah. obviously, I think to be fair, to be fair, the the book as well as the eighty nine version also get quite expository. Um, I, I just, I, I, I just go back and forth with this thing. It's tough to even describe it. Like, I'm, I need some more time to talk about. it. I'm I sure th- we'll be talking about this movie in the in the weeks to come. I kind of wanted more outsiders. The thing I really That's loved, a good point. The, the, you, Mike, you mentioned there really isn't a sense of place. No. Because for the most part, with the exception of the receptionist and Lewis's room— Bur- And then the birthday party. And like. the birthday party, there's a couple of nameless people— uh, Rachel's family comes in. We get
0: no dialogue from no. them. I didn't mind them cutting that. By the way,
3: we don't there, really need. Is that. there yeah. a lot of outside stuff from the original film? Yeah, well, in, like,
0: in the sense, like, I mean, the thing I love about it is like Missy, like Dandridge, the, when when she um is it Missy Dandridge? Is that her name? In I believe the right. housekeeper. Yeah, here. like I loved that storyline, and that was actually written specifically for the movie because it was a way to set up the notions of death for Ellie it's, and yeah, so you yeah. could figure that out. But those scenes are so great because it kind of almost reminds me of. The book, in a way, because you're cutting away to these other little stories that you don't get much, but you get enough. And it added character to the town itself. And and also, especially when Judd is telling these stories, you get that feel of the history within that area. Yeah. And all we really get is like internet search, which makes sense because it's modern era. But it just wasn't, I, I, I preferred the storytelling and, and, and whatnot. So, you
2: know. I, Dan, Mike, you mentioned Judd, mm-hmm. as we've mentioned many times in this episode. Do you think that it's another missed opportunity when it comes to not having Norma in an adaptation?
4: I don't think so, man. Um, I don't know. I'm hesitant to say that because it's always good to round, round it out, especially with, like, another woman character. But once again, if I'm just thinking about what we remember, like, from the book and, and even from the 89 version, like, it's not – you know, it's not the housekeeper even for me. It's not, it's not Norma. Like – I'm just a big fan of getting down to the essentials as much as you can in any film. I think most movies are too long these days. And I think most movies are bloated. So it does. I don't know. I don't think it loses anything. Um, I did think for a hot second that when uh, Ellie came back, she was going to talk about the the prostitute that Judd went to yeah, in the book. In the book yeah. I like really, I thought they were going to go there and I would have kind of loved that because I think it's a little bit more in line with this version of Judd who's not as kindly as an old, of, of an old man. But yeah, as far as Norma, I don't think I missed her too much as, as a character, like at all. Like I'll put it this way: I wasn't thinking about it at all when I watched the, this new one. So I, I walked out several times said, during the you. screening,
2: saying, <laughs> "Screaming at the screen, where's Norma?" On my way out, but I kept getting <laughs> yeah.
3: roped back in. like, we got to talk about it tonight. Please finish the movie. Something I liked about the original movie is that when they when they go when they get there it's like a little bit of fish out of water. Like this is, this is an old like area. It's an Mm. older town. It's kind of like a barn house. Like there's a, there's a, the the moment where miss, Mrs. Creed walks around. It was it Rachel, Rachel, Rachel walks around the house and it's, it's almost has a feeling like that the house is maybe a little haunted as well. And that, that I remember being pretty creepy and there's a little bit of that. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that in the pet cemetery, but there's a little bit of that in this, but it wasn't enough It just kind of felt like Totally normal house Neighborhood You know Judd's right there His house is fine um, I don't know It didn't feel as Like country As, well, I, as I wanted it to, Or isolated As I wanted it to feel Well
0: and they set that tone Immediately in the movie Because of the tire swing Because there's immediately The tire swing snaps she starts crying and it kind of has that pandemonium that's in that's the that's how she of the hurts book. her leg in the in the movie that's
3: right but i mean i think the cons are cons that we normally have with a lot of movies like just the, uh, the you don't need to C- you know don't use cgi just don't use it if you don't no. need it yeah. there's a ton of mo- money thrown at this like just go to the fucking woods please
0: they're in montreal and they were filming in quebec it is literally surrounded by woods you couldn't just go and film in the woods you set up the whole d- deadfall that was that there. looked great just go and find mean, a I think hiking they, trail. I like,
4: think they filmed the rest of it. Like, I don't know, I think the only part they didn't film in the woods was the Mi'kmaq ground. And, and whether you liked or hate it, I think it was just to give it a different feel than, than the woods they did have. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think it's because they didn't have woods. I feel like it was just because they wanted it to look different aesthetically.
0: Well, hey, yeah. if they wanted to find a swamp, I've been to New Orleans <laughs> a
4: bunch New of times. Yeah, uh, <laughs> on, on, <laughs> on, on the bayou.
0: All of our New Orleans listeners,
2: hey. I love New Orleans. I'm yeah. going back there in a the month. It's just, it's a bit.
4: Yeah, we've just it's 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 from the Decker episode. Like, That's right.
2: You know, yeah. you know exactly what we're talking about. Up Listen, the we've been we've been a little negative. There are some positives I'd like to discuss. Would Everybody like to join me in this discussion. Oh, yeah. Where? Hey, let's head to who knew? the cemetery. Oh, my God. Hello, this is Jason, co host of the All
1: 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com/slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active.
7: What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because Whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. Mac,
0: <laughs> what scared you?
3: Um, again, it's it's what we don't see. Mm-hmm. For me, uh, I really like when Jason Clark goes out in the basement. Yeah, and there's that dark room, and he just kind of walks in there looking for, but then you know he. he He walks into the, obviously it's the dream where he walks into the woods, but right before that, before that actually happens, I just, something's, something's not right there. And I thought that was going to come back later when he kind of does, I guess, when he goes down and, you know, and Ellie shows up or whatever, but I I just, I love stuff like that. And that, that also kind of reminded me of the original where that house is a little haunted as well. But, um, I love that. The way they shoot it too, because
0: like I think it's like Pascal walks like you only see a, gl- a slight glimpse of Pascal walking into that dark hall, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and, yeah. like,
3: and like and like I just assumed Pascal was standing there in yeah. the darkness, but I didn't and it didn't yeah, you didn't need to see it, and then obviously when he walks through, I did like that Then, all of a sudden he was yeah. in the in the the well, that's so like that that is the kind of CG stuff that work that works because you kind of yeah I want to speak on that, that. I I've yeah. been
2: thinking about that a lot I think any time especially the first time where he's upstairs in the bedroom yeah. it's very surreal and then he you think he's just made his way downstairs and is now looking out the backyard, but then you realize not only he's in his room, but you get that great outside shot that kind of reminded me of something from the drawing of the three. Mm-hmm. When you see the background of the woods and then you look right. through the door, the door and, it's, yeah. and it's his bedroom. I thought that was like beautiful. Yeah, And it happens a couple times. You kind of lose yourself for a second, much like he has lost himself in that scene. I think from a style standpoint, that might be my favorite part. Mm-hmm. I do... I stand by my favorite thing, though, actually being the twist. And I don't fault the directors and the writer for doing the twist. I fault the promotion department for the producers or whoever the hell was responsible for those trailers and leaking that because you really did a disservice to that twist. Yep. You know, but I still think it was a great decision to make. It's
3: no longer a twist. It's just a change.
2: Yep. And like I say, look, if you're going to remake something, if you're going to do another adaptation of something – Make it as good, or or at least make it different. And they really do make it different for the last thirty minutes.
0: Well, in the remake, in the next remake that's going to happen twenty five to thirty years, it's going to be Rachel who walks into the street.
2: <laughs> She's just like <laughs> stumbling into the street. Yeah. Well, a male in, in, in like, twenty five <laughs> years. Uh, mail!
3: in twenty five years. Wes Anderson's going to revisit this f- <laughs> film and do mm. a animated version with where animals mm. are oh. burying the the, the humans. Oh, they all oh, cats. I like that twist. Um, are they all cats. Yeah, yeah. It's a house full of churches.
0: Um, and they'll have the Kinks uh, covering a Ramon song or something like that.
2: Um, I don't want to be buried <laughs> in a pet um, cemetery. Uh, but what
3: boy. else? Uh, what else did you, Dan? Like? Well, you said okay. So I, you right, said the basement. I said the basement. You said that you liked the twist, Dan.
4: Um, I, I already talked about it in length, but the, yeah, just Lewis talking to Ellie and trying to have a normal relationship with her. If I was to pinpoint a moment, I would say him trying to brush her hair. Mm-hmm. That was the one that freaked me out the most. This was not the scariest moment for me, but I do want to point out as a, a moment that worked for me, and I wasn't sure if it was from the trailer, was the kids in uh, masks in the beginning. Like, I kind of like that it was just a little highlight. Like, it wasn't it, yeah, I I do for too. me— it was good they didn't come back to it or try and make it more scary kids or something like that. Well, Um, the trailer
2: makes... That's a good example of a trailer kind of, you know...
4: Tricking you a little bit. Tricking you, exactly. Yeah.
2: Because according to that trailer. And once again, maybe they cut stuff or maybe just the way it was cut together. It seemed like those kids were going to pop up throughout the entire movie and they don't. And I'm very happy. They don't. And I like
4: that you don't really know, like, were they really there? Were they just kind of specters themselves? You know, I I thought it was cool. I I was a fan of that, but yeah, for me, for me, the brushing of the hair and how that ties back to brushing church's hair, I think that was like to pinpoint a moment that that would be it for me.
3: Yeah. I I really like that too, Dan, That, that was a really, really awkward and just creepy moment. Just from when she turns around, she's like, "What is it?" Like she knows that he knows something's off, but he won't admit it to himself already. Yeah, those kids. Get rid of those kids. <laughs> I know. I'm we gotta with stay you. In the pros. I like, I like the idea no, that really? they're going to bury the dog, but like we already had the kids with the with the animal masks in Castle Rock. I know everyone digs up around Halloween; they dig up those old photos of old Halloween costumes, and a lot of it looks like that, and it's yeah. really creepy and awkward. There's even a picture of it when he's doing research. Yeah. That kind of is like, oh, okay, that's kind of like this little thing that's been in the town. But let me just, let me just throw this out there. Those masks are so well made. <laughs> There's no way these kids are making these, but yeah. where, where do they get these masks? And to have these little kids doing this very serious processional, like, and. and oh, Max, and, sorry.
2: I, I did some research as to who made those masks. Uh oh. It, it was uh <laughs> It was Upset that was Student.
3: Upset student <laughs>
2: from the beginning. Love it. She was also... Uh, she made masks. Um, no, I'm with Ultimately,
3: you, man. I, I I liked it in the sense that, like you guys said, like it really is just that one moment. And it, it worked. It worked. And that's it. And we never got to see them again. But but yes, you're absolutely right. The trailer makes it seem like they're going to be like terrorizing the house like the strangers or something.
2: Yeah, thank God they don't. That's what yeah. I'm saying. I'm, um, I'm happy they don't. I think uh, the other big plus for me is, I mentioned earlier, I just think that the acting is... Stronger across the board.
0: For for me, what actually unnerved me is kind of similar to what Kathy was saying. I really did love the sort of existential bed discussion mm-hmm. they had and you know, tucking Ellie in and that that realization that she actually did go to whatever afterlife yeah. is out there and then came back and had some answers. And that there's a shot that's just absolutely gorgeous that has the reading lamp light on Louis, his face as he's like looking over at Ellie and it's just a great shot and it's very chilling and it just it was the first time that I really felt that there's a sense of dread that this story is supposed to elicit. And then that basement sequence is unnerving. Even if it led to something that was a little bit more fantastical than I was expecting, uh it still was was really effective, but yeah, I mean, I just applaud the the whole decision of having the powers of the the dead. The fact that we are able to see Norma, the fact that like Rachel like woke up as Zelda is just that stuff was great. And that was, that, so for me, that just really hit hard. And cause that part in the book is especially with just the normal stuff is so harrowing and terrifying.
4: I, I, yeah, I Real forward. quick, guys completely unrelated. I know, uh, church was not present at the arc light screening that you all just had, but <laughs> apparently they did bring one of the church cats tonight, uh, to the Brooklyn horror screening in Brooklyn, uh, obviously. So man, there are well, people on well, Facebook. Well. And they're on Brooklyn,
3: Twitter. We should and they, just brought, any cat
4: to I'm the, sure the, the sure Christmas cat
3: <laughs> yeah. Church, <laughs> yeah she's, she's uh, almost
4: ready for whichever the church day. they had at this. They even, he even has a little tiny plaid tie on he's got a little feline ah. p- tie so oh.
7: yeah it's funny, miss out.
2: I, I feel like I lived with a little church uh, Dan of course we live with a little church our roommate um, well I don't know I guess Heather wasn't your roommate right who had a Faye, um, the cat Faye?
4: No, she she was for uh, for summer technically she was. But um and Faye has unfortunately passed away since. Uh, I I actually
2: uh, ended up growing quite uh, fond of that little cat because whenever Heather was in to town, cat, yeah. she was always she would sleep on my
4: chest and everything else. Oh. She was she piece. was very church like, I felt. Absolutely. That's, that's why that's why that's the only reason I brought her up. <laughs> she was a good cat, yeah. R I P Faye. Um
3: and and to to round off our positive stuff with one more negative, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I there was just the, what I what I wanted I think was a little bit more of when the dead come back. Um, I think what I love the most about the first film is the last scene when Rachel comes back mm-hmm. and she is like disgusting looking mm-hmm. and just kind of falling apart, but Lewis is so just insane at that point it's so creepy his reaction of seeing her it's like so this is full of love but she's clearly like this monstrous version <laughs> of rachel and it's such a great moment and i and i i know that they couldn't really do that with this because of the fast-pacedness of how they die they're not in the ground long enough you know rachel just gets like stabbed a couple times and it, so it makes sense that when they come back they're pretty much intact uh i just felt like I wish a little bit more time had passed or, or, or in some way, shape or form, or, or, or the way that, you know, Ellie kills Rachel was more gruesome. So that when she does come back, she's like this, you know, as a, a monstrous version of herself yeah. or, or, or more so Lewis. So that when he goes to the door that we see the terror in that kid's eyes before that cuts to black, like well, that was even more
2: as good as the special effects were, especially the practical effects when it came to a lot of the body horror and that type of, imagery i wish they had actually gone a little further with it i think yeah. they could have gone a little further with it i think they could have um like, not that i'm some kind of a, a, like a
0: goddamn bloodhound over here but uh, you know, i do love go that, for like, it because starry eyes just i think starry does for go for yeah. it yeah and, and i was expecting a little bit more especially like maybe more of the staples to come out or something like that or yeah. i do love that her face is like all just slack like, yeah. disoriented and stuff yeah, that, that was a great effect well, that was a great effect once um, again it
2: looks better than smoke-filled uh,
0: sound stages <laughs> <laughs> yeah seriously uh, so for me, I, yeah, I mean, there wasn't too many other things that like scared me in this movie, which is disappointing because I, I've always thought that the original film is one of the most frightening films of all time. Like, I, wow, yeah, I you've still, always
2: held that in a much higher esteem, I think, than I. I have. do. I yeah. really
0: love it. There's just something about it. And I think that yeah. the way that they distort things, like we talked to Mary Lambert about this, so like even like the the use of space and the way that like the floor seems to kind of dip, so that Zelda seems like she's even further away. But that when she runs up, it seems to be even like larger. Like there's just things that like really mess with your perceptions, and I and, and you don't really see that a lot in horror these days anymore because I don't know if it's just because everyone's so rushed and they have to go on schedule and whatnot, I don't know what it is, but
3: it I, I do miss that sort of thing. I think it's a mainstream
2: horror thing because I think you do see something like that in the hereditary, yeah, or oh, totally. the yeah. witch or something like that where they yeah. really do take their time, but
3: it's like creative camera work versus just like doing it, point shoot, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, and so well, you know, look, I mean. I had dinner tonight, but
4: I'll tell you what, I could use some dessert. Dan? I want some pound cake.
7: After all you've been talking everyone in bad, mama.
6: Everything in a sin. Come to your closet and pray, ask to be forgiven.
7: He's a nice boy, Mom. You like him. You really like him, mama.
2: Not a lot.
0: Not a lot in
7: this at all.
2: <laughs> Not a lot. And if anything, you know, the scenes between. Uh, Rachel and Lewis, they were just genuinely sweet. I'm not yeah. talking about sweet pound cake. I'm just talking about sweet scenes. Yeah. Um, I was really hoping kissing.
4: we w- we would get uh, what Mel, Mel called uh, the out of this world hand job. Yeah. From, oh from yeah. The book, but I need some That's
2: bathtub it. screwing around, but
3: uh, know, you know. I was really disappointed because I, 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 I checked in and out of some convers some, you know, a threat, a text thread that we were all on where this out of the world hand job was mentioned. And I thought, this was actually in the movie and that they were coming. Dan had commented on it. So I was hmm. like, where is this kind of from? This is going of- <laughs> <laughs> to be out of nowhere. And then, and it never came. And I was like, Oh, I got to ask them what they were talking about. <laughs> I, yeah. I guess because I haven't gotten that oh, part in the book. Um, yeah. I mean, it's got my
0: favorite sex scenes in any Stephen King book. Uh, yeah. yeah Mike liked it. I mean, I, mean I don't And I both liked it
4: in that, that episode. So uh, I, guess I, haven't had okay. goof-
2: I, I guess I haven't had a lot of goofy sex in my life. So what
4: can I say? <laughs> I, didn't Look, it was I don't think I don't dispute the hotness. It's just it's just a funny thing to read about. I think sex is. Always I just think pretty funny the way it's, it's
2: we always talk about the way it's written. I think just like the transitions in and out of like the mini chapters were funny.
4: Yeah. Okay. It was, I, I guess, think yeah, the I thing the thing that really sticks with me, and I was on that episode, but the thing that really sticks with me from that scene and makes it funny is A, the loofah, like the hand loofah, which is a thing and people use it, but it's still funny. And also Lewis talks about the hearing the blood rushing in his ears when he comes, which yeah. is like just so intense <laughs> and
0: funny to me. <laughs> like, no, uh, well, all of which is not in this movie. No, yeah. no, no, no. So, uh, really is no sorry, uh, we're not going to have any dessert tonight. <sighs> Spoiler alerts.
2: Uh, you yeah. should go read that book too. Hey, let's move on to another section in that case, shall we? Yeah. King's dominion
6: there's another world out there, all,
7: there is. all
0: right there are a ton in this
2: movie i want to point something okay. out that as a uh, fan of uh netflix's the crown mm. i appreciate it yeah there's a sequence where ellie goes this is my cat church and john lithgow goes oh church and she says it's short for winston churchill And John Lithgow says, oh, I'm familiar. Which is cute. Which is cute because he plays Winston Churchill on The Crown. Oh,
4: I didn't know that. You know what?
2: Usually I, I abhor that, but you know what? It was so it brushed was over. Fine, you know? it was so I don't mean, over. I'm fine. even
4: like the uh, the bait one of the big Easter eggs, which I feel like it's used as an Easter eggs in so many King movies, is the mention of Cujo, and it was just in the background, like you you couldn't even really hear it yeah. unless you were listening for it, which I appreciated. Like I, it, it felt very understated, and I don't mind Easter eggs when they're understated well, Dan, like that. He, there was some must really seen weird. A
3: different version because in this version <laughs> that we saw, Cujo shows up and actually has a conversation with Rachel <laughs> at the
4: door church?
3: Well, <laughs> Dan, the church. Well, don't you
2: Dan? Wait. I'm sorry, in the South by Southwest screening that you saw, are you telling me that there was not the scene where Roland is walking Cujo on a leash <laughs> and, and tips his cowboy hat to Rachel and says, Matt? a wheel. And Ma- then, oh and then God, Cujo God.
3: says, oh, I'm sorry, I was looking for another blonde-haired boy in this pot.
2: <laughs> with, with, his, with his Castle Rock accent.
3: Uh there was some even deeper stuff
0: that went out beyond Stephen King that were interesting. Sammy, my girlfriend, she had pointed out that the SpongeBob episode that Ellie's watching in the beginning mm-hmm. uh, happens to deal with the undead.
7: And oh. So that was like a kind of...
4: I've got a really deep one then. We're talking about SpongeBob. Guess know. who voices the starfish on that show? Dale Midkiff. Bill Fagerback who plays Tom Cullen in, in the, stand. the Stand. Oh, wow. Oh, that is pretty cool.
0: That's cause of wheel for
2: sure. Um, I noticed a certain signpost... When Rachel's heading back to town. Oh, yeah. Dairy uh, dairy. dairy, 22 right miles. around the corner.
0: That was cool. That, that was, was cool. cool. That was fun. And we, we, we already mentioned Cujo. We did. Yep. I thought at her <laughs> night. mentioned Roland. And
4: maybe oh, I missed Just to Cujo gets mentioned at the birthday party in the background by John Yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, he's, yeah just because we didn't say what it was mentioned for. Yes. Anyway. So that, oh, yeah. and, I lo- and I love that mention. That that that, was that's so, cool.
3: It was so in the background and just a throwaway that I, I appreciated it. Because it makes sense. It makes sense yeah. in the movie.
2: I just didn't uh, like when he showed up with Roland.
3: Well, yeah, that was a bit much. I, I you know, I, no, I didn't mind. I didn't mind that as much as I minded when he actually started speaking. When Kuj shows up and starts talking, um, <laughs> ultimately, uh, there was the the mo- at the birthday party. The number nine was featured a lot, and I was really looking hard to see if there was going to be some kind of like play on nineteen. And oh the, yeah, looking for that one. It was her ninth birthday, but I didn't. Catch it. Well, there was a part where they go, Well, you know, you only turn nine once. <laughs>
4: oh, jeez. But well, there is, uh, you get the song Pet Cemetery in the credits Wasn't the Ramones version? Or did they have someone? It was re-recorded? a cover. I couldn't tell.
2: But damn happy you mentioned, I almost forgot. Do you know why the uh, truck driver, the Orinco truck, uh loses sight of what's happening in front mm-hmm. of him? He gets a text from somebody named Sheena. Yep. And Sheena, Sheena is a punk, punk rocker me. is played yeah. during the 89 version when he's uh, about to crash. Yeah,
4: that's very cool. That's, that's cool. I like that. I thought that was fun. Yeah. And that's yeah, such it a deep cut. It's a de-
2: I, I don't mind deep cut references like that. I have no problem with that. It's when you've got the close-up of the blue milk in Rogue One.
3: Was there like, who any, gives a shit about this blue milk? Was there any other King's Dominion that
0: – Well, there's all that stuff when he's searching for articles and you see all the stuff that had happened previously in Ludlow. But they mention much more in the book.
3: Oh, mm-hmm. that was cool. That was yeah.
0: cool. you know, like the ox. That that was pretty cool. Yeah. Cause mm-hmm. They don't mention that in the eighty nine one at all. So and that's but that's all from
3: Pet Cemetery. But, yeah, yeah, the book. Yeah, it wasn't
0: like Yeah, yeah one
4: it's it's, it's all was. the stuff that took place beforehand, which uh COS reported that I think we would get a prequel, not a sequel, uh, according to the producer. Yeah. That yeah. Would, yeah. in which we would go into Timmy Banner, Timmy Bateman or Bannerman or whatever his name is if and we, uh
2: if we could take a a brief journey back into the nightmares and dreamscapes portion. I do want to point out Dan's interview with the producer, Lorenzo de, uh, de Bonaventura. I think the idea of a pet cemetery expanded universe is absolutely awful. Yeah. And I know people need to make money out there. I hope he finds another property. 'Cause I thought that was one of the
4: worst things I've ever Hey look, realized. man, look, he uh, he produced Bumblebee and expanded the Transformers universe in a way that I thought oh, was great. Christ. So I'm gonna hey, test
0: it I love that you hey. brought up Bumblebee, Bumblebee in the interview. You know yeah. they could do, hey so, hey you later, know what
2: they could do? What? They call Bumble Baderman. <laughs> <laughs> I got and that and, and
4: that like, a, little, a little girl
2: a little girl discovers a, a Vietnam veteran who's who was thought dead in the war and he's back to life. He <laughs> can only
4: speak in songs. In uh, in Ramon songs, <laughs> I think the
0: SpongeBob ep- bu- ah, I think the SpongeBob episode might be called Once Bitten, which is a Jim Carrey movie I like quite a With
4: lot. Lauren Hutton
2: and
0: uh, vampire, uh, yeah. Fun fact: uh, Lauren Hutton was uh, the spokeswoman for uh, Birdine's, a Florida store. I remember Birdine's. Yep, not not even it doesn't exist anymore
3: because uh, so it was eaten by Macy. Was there any more Kings Dominion? <laughs> Mac, we just pointed out <laughs>
2: Lauren Hutton was in the Birdine's commercial.
3: Uh, which is featured heavily uh, in Roadwork. Well, Another Florida, of course. Boring well, <laughs> no, story. <laughs> because
2: Florida, of course, is
3: where Duma Key takes place. Oh, Dominion. Hey, you I know, think these stories all take place on Earth.
2: <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I've had a great time tonight, but it's time to wrap things up with our overall <laughs> thoughts. Dad, can
7: we go now? You ready?
6: Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs>
7: Okay, I'll
6: be right there. He said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like
2: that when he's writing. Dan, I know it's a bit of a spoiler because you've had your review out there for a while, but you like this movie quite a bit. So once again, but let's change it up. Once again, we are going to do one to five bright red Pennywise clown noses. Dan, what do you got for Pet Cemetery?
4: I got to stick to my guns. Uh, I know it's been a little while since I've seen it, but yeah, I'm going to. What, what would be the equivalent of an a minus four and a half or yeah, four? Four and a half. Four and a half. Four and a half bright red Pennywise cloud noses. And, um, you know, if you need to why, know why, I'll say two things listen to this podcast episode and uh, read my review. And uh, it's, it's all in there, it's all on the page.
2: That's so very, uh, very uh, aggressive when you said, the way yeah. you said that.
3: <laughs> I, Mackenzie Gerber, I'm going to give it. Three bright red pennywise clown noses. It was right right there through the middle. Again, this this is an hour or so after we watched this movie. So I could sit with it and some things could ring ring more true. But uh the the three stars is main, mainly for those awkward sequences with with Ellie and and, and Jason Clark, uh the the, the actor. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh uh and also just so, so I felt like the characterizations and the Amy Semester stuff was really good. For, it worked for me. Yeah. Um, there was enough that worked. But I, I was very entertained during the film. I had a really fun time watching it, and I can't ask horror films a lot more than that. And so it, it, it gets three for three for me.
2: I um, once again, it's it's so right down the middle for me. It really is. Mm-hmm. For every pro, I can come up with a con. I know yep. I could do this. Like I would have a full sheet left and right filled up. And for that, I actually have to give it uh, two and a half bright red Pennywise clown noses. Yeah. You know, against a lot worked, but a lot of that was undercut by things I didn't think worked. I thought there was a lot of things... Not, I thought there were things better than the original movie, but I thought there were things that weren't as good as the original movie. There's this constant battle in Little Justo's mind that was happening throughout the entire movie, <laughs> like, oh, this is good, and then, no, this isn't that good. And just back and forth. And the inconsistency kind of put me off... I know I'm giving it less than a favorable review, but it's not like I would say don't see this because like, that third act. It's just it's frustrating, folks. Yeah. I, I think the very end is really fun and and cruel, and it's I like that a lot. And- but I just felt like I've said it before. I just think it was a little too accelerated at times for me to to give it a real favorable review, and, and it just didn't quite uh, stick the landing in that regard.
4: I think you guys can all go fuck yourself. Mike hasn't
0: given his review yet. Maybe he'll love it. <laughs> Mike I think I echo Justin's sentiments, but just a little bit. i, I th- there's a lot to love in this movie, and i and I really do respect at how audacious it actually is uh, when you actually really think about the narrative and where they're taking this, and how many twists and turns, and the fact that the twists and turns actually do work. You know, that doesn't happen very often. Usually when people stray from the source material, it becomes a fucking train wreck. And that's not the case here. I I think that there's, that's actually the strongest suit of this movie is when it actually does pivot and turn. And I think between that and the attention to detail with regards to character, I mean, the character designs in here are just fantastic. I mean, I love what Amy Simons gets to do with Rachel. I love what Jason Clark gets to do with Lewis. I think that... I still will always prefer Fred Gwynn's Judd over, you know, John Lithgow's Judd, but I do agree with Caffrey that he does almost borderline on caricature at times. So, you know, I think you can go, you know, either way um, for a variety of reasons, because the 89 is such a classic and especially in my eyes. I mean, this is one of the first movies I ever saw as a kid. Uh, one of the first horror movies I ever saw, and certainly one of the first Stephen King properties I ever saw. So, the fact that this film manages to pique my interest and manages I, I managed to find things I love about this movie just kind of shows that there is there are a lot of strengths to this film and a lot of, you know, that's a hurdle in itself. And so I'm giving it uh, three bright red Pennywise clown noses, which I think is strong. I think, you know... I'm leaning almost towards a three and a half, but um, I need to see it again. It's this has been way too. This is we literally just saw it a couple hours ago, which I'm sure we were doing a disservice to it. But hey, we got plenty of opportunities on this podcast to talk about things in the future. So you know, maybe it'll change.
4: Can we get some What Was that come out to uh, among yeah, I'm, four I'm, of us? I'm actually
0: doing the math in my head right now: 15,
2: 21, 26, 13. It's like a three point twenty-five. I, I think we round,
4: up. Think think we round
2: up and say four 4.5, I think. 4.5? <laughs> we'll give it a Dan Caffrey <laughs> push.
4: <laughs> <laughs> the, the Dan decaf push. The decaf uh, call,
2: push.
3: Paw
4: print, kitty kitty print of approval. Well, wait, now, Little we did mention that print. the
3: Wendigo is actually here in the studio, and Ooh. he gives it a whopping five. Wow. <laughs> five bright red Pennywise Ooh. clown Wendy's.
2: Get, Wendigo, get out of here. Ah. He's gone. Well, we did it. Now, I'm looking forward to seeing if Kevin Colesh and Dennis Woodmeyer remake Pet Cemetery 2. I wonder if they will actually do that. And they'll get uh, uh, Eric, in Eric Lascelle instead of Anthony Edwards in <laughs> the role It'll be,
3: it'll a, be a Miles a, Teller's return oh to God. the big screen. Miles Teller. Remember Miles Teller? Oh, yeah.
2: Well, he'll be in Top Gun 2. So, <laughs> you know, that's good for him, I guess, right?
0: I think mean, that's a Paramount release, actually, though.
2: It, it really is a Paramount release. Mm-hmm. I guess yeah. it was in the original uh, Top Gun. Anthony, oh, Edwards. Anthony Edwards, he was Goose. Yeah, that's right. He's actually playing uh, Tom wait, Cruise.
3: I think he's actually playing Goose's son too. That's a really weird coincidence. Well, I think I think Tom Cruise is going to be in the next Pet Cemetery movie, especially if it's a period piece.
4: Oh, I can't wait! I hope he plays a stock
3: Pet Cemetery Fallout.
4: I think he'll play. Uh, he'll play Church of Scientology.
7: <laughs>
3: you know wow. what? There's Can no other way, way to picture? go out. Can we get that picture, please? Tom great... Cruise playing Church of Scientology. Oh, <laughs> great... I love it! I love <laughs> it. Pet Cemetery to the early days.
7: Look,
2: what better way to go out? What better way to go out? And please make sure you stick around for our interview with Kevin Gulch and Dennis Widmeyer. But this has been a great time. We gotta go. It's late we spent 5 hours watching and absorbing and talking about pet cemetery. So, listen, if you like what you've heard, please pe- please spread the word, leave us a review wherever you're listening to your podcast. It really does help us out a lot and we'll be back in the future with more pe- episodes of
0: the <laughs> losers club. Yeah. Who knows what's to come. Well, next week is a bag of bones, so get ready to answer some questions.
2: Oh, yeah, we got I'm sure there's a lot. For ask been, questions. God, there's been a lot of news. We've got Dark Tower casting. We've got Castle Rock casting. We've got what what creep show news? Creep show news. We've got Doctor Sleep stuff. We got it yeah. trailers coming out probably it's in the next insane. week or so. We got a lot to talk about folks, but until then long, long days and, and
5: pleasant, pleasant nights. nights. They fear that place. There's something up there. Something that dates way back. Those woods along to something else. Something. That cat was dead. That brings things back.
6: <laughs> hey
5: Michael, Dennis. How you doing dude? Hey, how you doing? Good man. Kevin's here as well. He's buttering hey, a bagel.
3: Buttering <laughs> nice. A bagel. Yeah.
5: Nice. So nice. you might hear some occasional bagel chewing yeah. sounds. We'll try to alternate when we talk, so you don't hear too much of that. Yeah. Whatever butters your bagel. <laughs> you know, in not, this case, not to get a bagel. butter bagel. Uh, yeah, butter is what <laughs> butters his bagel. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, I uh, I love uh, everything that you've been sharing over the last 24 hours. Uh, Church was a huge hit, I guess, last night at the Brooklyn Horror <laughs>
5: Fest. Um, how did that? Yeah, go? he always <laughs> he always steals the show. <laughs> yeah, we brought him up on stage. People were loving him, Then he actually hung out at the bar to like twelve 12.30 a.m. Just kind of like <laughs> on the table drinking with everybody. It was pretty funny. So, is was the owner there also, it, it, it,
0: or is it just like you get to loan the cat out, or <laughs> you get to hang out with someone in the crew? Oh, who gets to
6: catch Came down all by himself. Yeah, the
5: <laughs> <laughs> that, it was. Uh, it's the two trainers are there. Yeah, Kirk Jarrett and Melissa Millet. She t- said last night. I pronounced her last name. I yeah. forgot it already. Oh my god! I love it. Millet, Melissa Millet. Yeah. So they came down. They had never seen the film before. They trained the animals. So it was a total pleasure for them to be there. Aww. And uh, yeah, this there's a, a few cats that played Church. Yeah, this is the one ask. that plays Church. Yeah, the first half of the movie. So he's like the good version of oh, church. Oh, awesome. <laughs> and he uh, he's very trainable. He's very good around crowds. He'll pose on your shoulder for photo ops and stuff. So he, he had a blast. He, oh my he had God. a fun time hanging out.
0: So, so what did, is the other church that's bad, is that like a feral cat or something? <laughs> that's like just rabid or like, that's
5: great. They were all rescues and they all found homes afterwards. So Melissa, she's one of the trainers, she adopted – the good church at the end of the day and Kirk, the other trainer, the lead trainer, he adopted Leo who plays the evil version of church. The one that's primarily been on the billboards and the posters and stuff. Nice. Nice. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That'd be great for the whole fam. Um, yeah, well, this a killer cat that's in this movie. Um, and we brought it home. Uh, do, are you either of you yeah, exactly. allergic to cats at all? Or is anyone on set? Yeah,
6: uh, I, I am. Yeah. I have them. And I have them. So I've, uh, just, uh, Always oh, walking around, stuffed up with <laughs> tissues, and
5: yeah, and, uh, he's worse than I am. I think everyone kind of is a little bit, but you just kind of learn to get used to it. Yeah,
0: that's what I was wondering. Also, is just if that was a stipulation in the casting, or it's like, well, there are going to be cats here, so uh, you either deal with it, or you know, we have to find someone else that can't do it. But.
5: Um, I think Amy was too, right? Or Jason? A few of the actors were. They. I don't think they really said anything at first, and then we found out later on. <laughs> they're just like, de- like going oh off well. and to leave and die. Yeah, great. Um,
0: yeah, pretty much. Well, so like a remake of Pet Sematary has kind of been in development hell for years. And I mean, cause I remember hearing about it back in like the mid aughts and there was like George Clooney that was circling around the po- project at one point. And I kind of wanted to like wonder, like, why did it, why do you think it, ta- it took so long? And, um, you know, why did it get ramped up? Uh, I mean, I guess with the success of it maybe, but, um, just trying to figure out like where, where you got where you guys came in and kind of, if you could feel the history of this project behind it when, when you actually came into,
6: yeah. Um, it was a—we uh, had heard of it, actually, right, uh, that that it was in development right when we finished Starry Eyes, or when we finished Starry Eyes, but after we had, like, toured it about, and we got some reps out of it, and our reps were, like, looking for projects for us, and we were like, oh, we'd love to do that one, because that seems like, you know, like a job, like we'd be taking a studio job, but it was one that was— uh, a one for us as well, because like we were big fans of the source material. So it was kind of like that. We were like, Oh, that would be the perfect job. You know, like, uh, but our reps were like, Oh, you'll never get it. They already have an actor. I mean, they already have a director attached. And, uh, and you guys just came off this small little indie film, which is not, you know, you haven't really done enough. So years went by. And like you said, it was stuck in development hell. And like, uh, it, didn't uh it didn't end up getting uh made and uh, their director fell through or he left I don't know what the story was and uh, in the meantime me and Dennis had taken a lot of other studio jobs doing rewrites mm-hmm. that we were attached to direct but those movies didn't end up going or happening but like we had done enough studio jobs that we were now able to sort of get in a room awesome and uh and then just like all three of these things kind of like aligning where like their director fell through we were able to our project fell through. We were able to get in the door on that. And then, like you said, it, and now everyone was kind of green lighting their Stephen <laughs> King project. So, like, all three of those things just kind of came together at the right time and, you know, put us there. <laughs>
0: So the, the Stephen King buzz is like a real thing in Hollywood right now, where everyone's just like, what properties of King can we get? And how how fast can we usher this into production? Or is because I mean, we theorize all the time on the podcast, or not theorize per se, but just, you know, read the dailies and, and go, well, he's hot right now. But how hot is he? Like, is is, is I mean, our suits nonstop talking about him left and right? Just like, what stories can we grab? What can we do next? Um, or is that just kind of hyperbole?
5: <laughs> No, I mean you're 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 kinda right. I mean it it's uh it's not so much that when you're actually at a studio everyone is walking around boasting about him, but they are. <laughs> I you know. Yeah. Because so many so many so many of these, you know, men and women uh that are our age, close to our age, or even a lot younger, uh in one way, shape, or form has been touched by Stephen King. You yeah. know, they they've either read his books growing up or they've uh, been big fans of his movie adaptations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but beyond that though, you're just seeing that I mean look at the traits. Look at how many like yeah. adaptations are Still coming out, I mean, oh, like insane. I think some art some magazine ran an article recently that kind of tried to catalog them all, and it's like you can't even keep track of them, you nice. know, and now' Joe hill Owen King i mean it's just just
7: it's
5: just it really is a collective renaissance that's happening right now in this entire family, yeah
0: what were some of your biggest fears going into this?
6: Hmm. well, I think uh we were worried about. Kids and animals, like people always say. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, the nature of the kids and and animals—you know—that it wasn't like just like a story of a girl and her cat, you know, where which would have been hard enough (laughs) working with, uh, you know, a kid or an animal. But like these were situations where they were dealing with kind of uh, dark subject matter. So one of our fears was, yeah, working with a child and how to work, you know, how to talk about some of this subject matter. And uh, luckily we got Jate in the movie, who is really a natural, and mm-hmm. uh, we didn't actually have to tell her too much stuff at all. She seemed to just kind of get it, and it really made our jobs a lot easier. But I think that going in for
5: me, that was uh, one of my worries. Yeah, that was the big one, definitely.
0: Yeah, And what in, in terms of, uh, you know, the major story change and the narrative shift, was that... Always drilled into Matt greenberg's original story, or was that something that kind of got
5: developed when you two came in, or yeah no that was uh that was Mac greenberg uh, oh, wow. and the, I think the last he was involved really uh, from the from a creative standpoint was around two thousand thirteen or so oh, okay and uh, then in between that, they had other people on board, but uh that idea was you know stuck you know and we're glad it did so yeah. when we came on board, Jeff Bueller had now already been on the project for I think over a year. And, uh, had the, and, but, but that one element from the Mac Greenberg's rep was still there. Interesting. And so basically we came on board and we were really excited about it because, uh, you know, we, we understood that in the book Mm -hmm. and even in the original movie, Ellie is the one that is asking questions about mortality. You know, she's the one sitting out with her dad saying, you know, God can't have my cat, you know? And I mean, uh, that really happened to Stephen King's daughter, you know? Yeah. And, uh, her saying that, him hearing that while she jumped on a bunch of, uh, you know, what was it, popcorn in the garage, you know? Yeah. What was what led him to say, uh, you know, wait a second, let me let me take the story a different way and see what happens. And he sat down and pounded out the story, you know? So uh, it made sense to us to say, you know what? It's not only that uh, this character could vocalize in a way that Gage can't, because she's older, you know? But it's also that she has uh, the conscious mind to understand that when she comes back at the end of the movie, she's she's dead, you mm-hmm. know, and that uh, she now has a different understanding of these questions that she asked in the first act of the movie. So you get to kind of revisit these same questions later on in a really kind of dark, kind of almost kind of really interesting way that you, you, you really, you, you can't do with Gage as easily no. or at all, no. movie, you know. And so that was really, you know, intriguing to us.
0: No, I loved, I mean, the whole existential conversation between um, Ellie and Lewis and, and the, the you know bedtime scene is just such a pivotal moment in the film. And I, and I loved it too, because it comes at, it's, it's such a subversion in so many ways because that discussion happened so much earlier on in the book and in the the movie and then the previous movie. So to have it towards the end and after she's gone through this sort of (laughs) transformation is just, it was just genius. And it also feels like a crossroads at that point where the film could literally go anywhere. And I wondered how uh, were there any discussions of like, okay, we could take this anywhere we want. How many, did you, did you all have like different outcomes that you would really going for at that juncture? Or was it always, did you always have a set plan of where it was going to go?
6: Um, no, I mean, there was a somewhat, no, there was a somewhat set plan. I mean, things changed a little bit on the fly, like the locations of the climax was different, like in the original script, it stuck to the house, but we had like it was one of them things where you kind of production design something, it looks amazing, and then you're like, and we're here for like an afternoon and then they're gonna tear it all down. Like, what let's get more <laughs> use out of this uh great location that the movie's named after and like so I mean we changed that and uh and there is uh an alternate ending as well that's on the uh that will be on the digital release of the movie. But uh aside from those couple things, it mostly follows
7: the, the, yeah.
6: the, the structure that we kind of laid out a uh, while ago. And when I, and I say a while ago because I because you say, you asked from the beginning, but I mean, obviously me and Dennis worked with the writer and yeah. stuff in life. And, you know, when we came on board, the script was not following the trajectory that the movie does now. So, yeah, but ever since we worked with him to kind of get it where we were, it's mostly been the the same
0: did uh, Stephen King ever weigh in on any
5: of the changes, or talk, did you did you get to talk to him about it? Uh, sort of. So he one of the cool things about Stephen King is that he he you know he understands that uh, adaptation is not transcription. So he's never looking for people to just transcribe his novels. You know, yeah. he wants he wants some level of adaptation and some vision. You know that, that is not wholly his own. You know, mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, mainly it's just about you know retaining the themes and the metaphor, making sure that at the, you know you're sticking to the essence of the novel. So he he stays out of the process, and he was not involved until the very end, which in a way was sort of more nerve wracking because mm-hmm. we then had like this near finished product that we had to like hand him and say, "Please, sir," you know, like <laughs> judge us, so Almighty One, you know. And so I think we were back in Montreal doing some pick pickup shots like you always have to do, and he we heard our producer Lorenzo Di Bona told us that all right, Stephen King is down in Florida; he's with his his manager or his agent, and they, they have a theater that they rent out for them, and he's about to watch the film. Oh, my God. And we were like, wait, what? He's watching it tonight? <laughs> I'm not mentally prepared for this. And so I think Kevin and I were, like, calling each other during the next hour and 41 minutes, like, going, like, what scene do you think he's on? Do you think he likes it? I don't know. And then we were so thrilled to hear that. he He really liked it a lot. And he called our producer back, and he was just... Kind of talking about all the family stuff and how much he appreciated all that and how he found it was really scary. And then he tweeted about it twice the next day and tweeted about it again like a week ago. So he's he's really been like a big cheerleader of the whole thing. Yeah. But uh, but now he the only real I think because we were in the middle of doing pickup shots uh, he weighed in on that with uh, oh maybe if you did more of this or you did more of that and stuff. But it, it it wasn't that specific. It was more just like general you know, cheerleading and rooting on for things that he liked in the movie.
0: Oh, interesting. So, I mean, as as diehard Stephen King fans, that must have been just the dream.
5: Oh, God, yeah. The whole reason why we do it, you know, was completely very validating and awesome. Oh, my
0: bad. Oh, my gosh, that's amazing. Um, You know, one of the big controversies, obviously, going into this over the past couple of months was the trailer and how they let loose the the twist. And, you know, I wondered, especially how it's set up in the movie, where you see Gage run and then you also have Ellie in the street, was it always the intention to kind of let that loose in the trailer or where there's, there there a great debate at that point, uh, you know, with that, that second trailer?
6: No, I mean, you know, like when you watch the movie, yeah, obviously Gage runs to the road. There's lines earlier in the movie, like Ellie saying, like (laughs) and Gauge when the mom uh, and dad are telling her that you got, we're going to be around for a real long time. Like there was like little, like, winks to the audience thinking that, like, hey, people that know the source material and know the original movie, you know, it's coming. Like, you know, like, uh, because you have to you have to make a movie for the movie and just, like, assume that nobody sees any marketing stuff. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? You can't, when you're making the movie, you can't really think about marketing. Uh, so it was just, yeah, it was done to kind of, wink at the audience, and then, yes, it would be a surprise when it was Ellie instead. And, uh, you know, in our brains, and uh, also through conversations with people in marketing, it was kind of uh, hinted at that they were probably going to do it in the trailer. Me and Dennis fought it for a while, yeah. and Mike said, no, uh, we really want this to be a surprise in the movie. But then uh, then it kind of became clear that they were going to do it. But, uh, but me and Dennis... Uh, <laughs> Realized that, like, you know, in the end they were probably right about this. And, like, it's funny, like, with Starry Eyes, uh, it was another thing as well that we did not want people to kind of know what happens from the second half of that movie on. Yeah. Like, you know, so then, like, uh, when Starry Eyes uh, was – when, when they were promoting Starry Eyes, like, the, uh, the trailers were all just – girl goes on and auditions with weird production company. And you were like, okay, well, what happens after that? You know, like, and <laughs> and sure, for me, that would be enough to intrigue me. I, I, I'm one of those people I don't really like to watch trailers or look at things before I go to a movie, I, you know, if I know I want to see it. Mm-hmm. But uh, but from the standpoint of trying to win people over to get them into your movie, I was like, there's not a whole lot of, you know, information there. So it was kind of like when you look at the original Pet Cemetery. Movie the uh, the trailer shows Gage. Yeah, it shows that Gage dies and comes back. So because that's just the plot of the movie. But uh, with us, because we changed the kid, it was now being viewed as like a twist that the kid was changed. So but then if you want to preserve that as like and ca- if you want to call that a twist and you want it to be a surprise and you want to preserve that, well then you can't show any of that in your trailer, which is like I said, they did in the first movie, it's just the plot they showed. Yeah. One of the kids comes back. So it kind of, like, shows it. So it kind of, like, limits what you could kind of show in a trailer. So, like, me and Dennis kind of started coming to grips with the fact that they were going to do it. And, like, uh, and ultimately, I think that after they did, they came out with some really good trailers. I think that third trailer they just came out with the other day was my favorite one. I thought it was a really well-done, effective trailer. You know, so... uh mm-hmm. And it seems that people—it's weird uh, when they test it with people. It's, and again, this isn't me. This is—I like to not watch trailers, yeah, so yeah. I'm dif- I'm different from the public. But it seems like they uh, they do tests, and it seems like people in audiences respond better to the things that they've seen. Yeah. Whereas, like in a comedy movie, people laugh harder at the jokes that they've seen in the trailer. Like mm-hmm. it just kind of seems to be the way it is. And we did some tests, and uh, our scores. When we played the test audiences, went up after that second trailer was out. Like people liked the movie better after they already knew that it was going to be Ellie. Uh, so I don't know. So maybe they know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> no, they. Probably, I mean,
0: they definitely do. I. I. It. It is such a strange thing in this world now that, and I. I don't know if it's just the way that the internet has kind of carved our minds now or, you know, with like Reddit culture, but like everyone wants to know everything before they go into anything anymore. And I, I just, I, it's odd to me. Like if you, for, for, I'm the same way as you, like I, I love going in blind. Like I I remember as a kid just seeing, even seeing like, you know, teaser trailers for like the big blockbusters in the nineties and stuff and just being like, okay, that's good. I don't need to see it. and I, And not yeah. even having seen the other trailers cause there wasn't YouTube at the time. So there was that element of surprise, but it is weird that, like, in today, the, the absorption of, like, even trivia and spoilers. Like, people, there's some that, some that, like, think it's a sin to get spoiled, but some, like, really just look out for it before they even watch the damn thing, which is so odd to me. Um, yeah. You know, but... No,
6: me too. Like, <laughs> when I read books, like, I, I keep a list of books I want to read, and, uh... And you know, I I forget where they all got recommended from. Maybe I read a blurb. Maybe I read what this was about here. But like, by the time I get to one on the list, it's probably been a while since I read the thing. So like, so I start reading some of these books. I have no clue at all what they're about. Like, yeah. and I read all different. I read all different types of things. So I'll start reading a book, and it'll be like introducing to a story of a man and his daughter, and like, and I'm like. In ten pages from now, a vampire could show up, or it could just be a drama about yeah. their hardships. And I'm like, and I, I don't know, you know. I'm waiting for the book to surprise me, and
5: you know, that, that's a great
6: feeling.
0: <laughs> it totally is. I mean, we were. I was talking about um, just in the walk home last night. And I was talking about like just the the Twin Peaks effect of like la, of uh, 2017, where um, you just never knew, even up until the very last second before the premiere, and even up to the series premiere, the series finale. You just never knew ever. And it was such a it was huh. it was so disarming, but in a good way. And I don't know. It just I don't know if we'll ever go back there. <laughs> Probably not considering yeah. there's just such a competition for um for everyone to, because there's so much content now, and I think that you kind of have yeah. to put everything out there. But I yeah, know. they
5: got to rise above it, it all. Yeah, so they feel. I like guess they feel like the more they show, the more people will talk about that specific piece of content. You know, yeah, yeah. it's the culture we've created. I know, <laughs> it's crazy. We, we're we we're, we're, we're to blame it for it as much as marketing is.
0: Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. Um, One of the things I also loved is you know, leading up to this film, every adaptation you always hear about the actor is saying, "Oh, you know, I love this. Uh, you know, I love the source material and everything." But you no. Know, Jason and Amy, like, they really were, like, long-time King fans. And I wondered, did that love for King aid in the
5: production? And did you kind of recognize that while you were filming it? Uh, yeah, it's, it was a good feeling, too. It was like sometimes, you know, Kevin and I write our own scripts as well. So it's different when you've written something uh, original and actors are coming on board. And that's its own sort of excitement as well. Uh, because you become, hopefully, fans of the material as you go. But sometimes you never totally fully understand what's in the writer or the director's mind, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, You're just trusting the director and going with it, you know, and and hoping it all comes out good, you know? Yeah. But with Stephen King, uh, you know, so many people have read him already and so they have their own personal experiences with him from growing up, you know? So they bring that with them into the filming, you know? Mm -hmm. Everybody has a different reaction or a different time when they discovered him, you know? And so, I don't know, that sort of makes it like a, like a fun little love letter, you know, when you're, when you're making these things, Yeah, is that everybody on set has the different book that they read first, you know, or the different experience they had when they first read Pet Cemetery, you know. And the book means very different things to very different people. You know, Amy is somebody who has talked about experiencing loss and grief in her life, uh, and so the book touches her in that way. Jason is someone who now has kids. You know, he, he, has an, he has an eight-year-old boy who's like the same age as Ellie almost. Gotcha. You know, and he has a newborn. So he's now a father. So he sees the book very differently than he did when he first read it. You know, it affects mm-hmm. him differently, you know? Uh, so it's, just, it's one of those books that's timeless, you yeah. know? There's something almost Shakespearean to it, we, we, we always say, because uh, it's about this age-old, very relatable topic. And it's unfortunately the topic of death, you know? And it's, dealing with grief and it's something that we're all going to have to deal with one way, shape, or form or another, you know, and throughout our lifetime. So uh, I think that's why the book is so ageless and why, you know, they made this movie 30 years ago. They'll, we're making it now and they'll probably make it again in 30 years because this will never, this will never be something that is not relevant.
0: No, that's true. And what's so interesting is that out of all the sort of modern facelifts, we, we talk a lot about on the podcast uh, about a lot of Stephen King's seventies work wouldn't necessarily it, it, you just kind of really need to keep it in the 70s in a lot of respects and with Pet Cemetery, I never really thought about the idea of like modernizing it and honestly like there was no there, there were no irregularities in the narrative because of the modernization like I mean you get to see him do research on the internet and the phones were you know people neglect to answer it or not so there was no real problem there in or hindrance and I So I was actually surprised at that, you know, in the, the sense that because usually, you know, cell phones could be such a killer in, in horror movies and especially for something that's so a narrative that's so insistent upon um, just things falling in place, you know, where, you know, one person could have just absolutely changed the course of events. I was just, I don't know, it was was kind of a relief to see that not affecting the story whatsoever. So I agree with you. I think, yeah, this could probably happen in 30 years from now also,
6: um, because, you know. Yeah, and that was one of the important things for us, though, too, was that, like, you know, like you said, a lot of Stephen King's books take place in the 70s or 80s, and maybe it's a big part of them. So, like, if you were going to make them today, you might do a period piece. But for us, like we were saying, like, Pet cemetery is such a relatable subject like Dennis was saying like that that make setting it in a date would be like in the past would be kind of almost saying that this story needs to happen in the 80s and it wouldn't mm-hmm. and, it, and it, you, there would be a detachment there as if like people watching it now are like oh this doesn't affect me because this is some 80s but 80s story or something but it's not you know it's a timeless story so like it was important for us to set it in the modern day.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things also interesting was the um the sense of like folklore. You know, you have I mean the what I love about the original, you know, novel is that there's this intense history that's in this area. And I think with Judd in this one, you get the sense of you're actually, you know, discussing a lot of the folklore. And one of the, you know, obviously one of the biggest pieces of that is the Wendigo. Um and I kind of wanted to ask, and you know, it's it seems as if like anytime you mention the Wendigo with with Pet Cemetery, you kind of have like a feeling of like, okay, that's a true fan. They know exactly what the hell's going on with this story. Yeah. Um, you know, was it? Uh, you know, how long did it take to conceptualize it? You know, this this creature for for this movie, um, and how many different variations was he always going to be kept in the shadows?
5: No, he was. Uh... Yeah, I mean, one of the, the the main there were a lot of like key <laughs> key questions we would always get asked on Twitter or by fans, and it was like, uh, is Norma is Norma going to be in the movie? Yeah. You know, and the other one was always the Wendigo. Are we going to do the Wendigo? You know, and uh, we went back and forth on it. You know, I mean, uh, there there was iterations where we had like different cold opens that took place like hundreds of years before the movie began, where you saw like the creation of the burial ground and the you know the mm-hmm. the Wendigo's place and and everything. You know. And then the Wendigo became something that we said, okay, let's, uh, let's, let's kind of do what the book does and let's treat it more like, uh, like a metaphor. Like mm-hmm. it's something you hear and you could sense that's out there, but we're never going to overtly show this like 10-foot creature stalking around, you know? Mm-hmm. Meaning it could be something that's subjective, you know? Uh, and so where we landed was uh, we had some concept art for it and we had different like variations of how clearly you might see it. And in the end, we decided that the more ambiguous we could keep it, the better. So there's clearly a part in the movie where Lewis is going back to Barry Ellie there, and he pauses and he's looking into the trees, and something's could or could not be looking back at him. It's up yeah. to you whether or not you see something there. We, we always joked around that it was sort of like, where's Waldo? You know, <laughs> like, so uh, we're not going to say whether or not there's anything there. It's just, I think everyone's going to see it differently than yeah. what they're looking at. You they did. They and, totally
0: did because we were debating that for at least 20
5: minutes last that's night. That's what we wanted. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We wanted people to debate whether or not, you know, there's something actually in those trees. Yeah. And we're not going to give you the answer whether or not there is. Yeah, but- love it.
6: And, that, and that's. And that's the beauty of of folklore, though, right? Like, you were talking about folklore. And it's like, well, that's what, like, I find interesting about it, is that, like, is it real or is it not? You know, like wh- like people telling ghost stories. You yeah. know, like, you know, everyone has one, but you go like, okay, is there some explanation? Did you really see You know, like, but in a movie, if, if you suddenly just saw him, you know, the Wendigo standing there clearly, then we're saying it's true, it's real, and you know, like, and it's suddenly a creature movie. We didn't want it to, like, we didn't want to tip it into that territory too much. We wanted it to still remain, you know, the 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 mystery of the folklore to remain, you mm-hmm. know, because that's what we find interesting about, you know, urban legends and whatnot, you know. Yeah, no, totally. Uh,
0: with with that in mind, and so many different. Um, ways you could kind of take it and i, I and especially with the discussions of um even just the alternate ending is there a lot of stuff that was left on
5: the cutting room floor um but it's gonna be about seven deleted <coughs> sorry eating bagel yeah you want <laughs> yeah. to take
6: it over and, and uh
5: seven uh, seven deleted or extended scenes and uh
6: and an alternate and an alternate ending,
5: ending. yeah uh and so we think, uh, the you know, for the digital home video people that, that watch this movie, there's a lot of great stuff that's going to be on there. And uh, they're all great scenes. Mm-hmm. It's just the nature of uh, adaptation. You want to pack so much stuff into the movie as you can, you know? Yeah. So I think Kevin and I just got greedy. And we were like, ooh, let's do this, let's do that, you know? And then you just have to look at the pacing of the finished product and just kind of, you know, uh, look at that alone and not look at everything else that went into it. Just look at what's the best version of the film. But uh uh, yeah we i mean we, we really love every every scene that could be on the uh, the extended edition it's it's uh they're all pretty great
0: and for the alternate ending does it uh does it end in an um a more optimistic light or is it still in that that yeah. sort of very... no 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 <laughs> <laughs> awesome awesome
5: Yeah, yeah it, it, in a lot of ways it's almost more bleak than this <laughs> yeah it's uh yeah.
6: it's all it all depends on uh you know your preference uh you know it's like choosing. Which shade of black you're gonna wear, or something? <laughs> you know, like it, it's dark. It's just a different kind of dark. Um, yeah. You know, so you'll see it soon
0: enough. <laughs> Very. I love it. I love, and I and I love that ending so much that that final shot is just. It's a. It's going to be one of the the, the better. More memorable, like endings in in, in recent horror. I, I think it's just so ballsy. Right. I, I just I, lo- I love. Oh yeah. It, you know. Thank you. Um. You know, and I also love just the attention to detail that you have. And, and you know, you, you two had an interview recently where you discussed uh, just how easy and gluttonous Easter eggs can be and yeah you know i think we always joke around on the podcast there's just like the idea that like in the dark tower movie like they just threw in cujo randomly or like you know they had like a kid with a christine car but with this there's such a finesse to it that i really love like you know with the sign and dairy and um you know the mention of the saint bernard of at the barbecue and all and
6: yeah, you caught that one
0: uh, yeah really that really happened with the
5: book <laughs> and that's yeah. and
0: that's it's so cool i love that and it's, it's there's such an d- attention to detail in that and even my girlfriend even pointed out the um uh, the SpongeBob episode has to do with the undead and burying. Oh. So um, you're the yeah. first
5: person to point that out or really? she was the first person to point that. that was the whole reason why we chose that clip. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause she's a yeah. huge SpongeBob fan. So she was just like, even in the movie, uh, she was just like, there is, that, that's the dead, the undead one, or that, that, that's so cool that they put that in there. So, um, how much yeah. fun did you have as fans putting this in there and how much like restraint did you have to put yours on yourselves to be like,
5: okay, let's, let's settle back on this. We, uh, yeah, we, we set rules for ourselves, you know, like uh, sometimes you could overdo Easter eggs. We've seen movies do them, you know, and so we, we, did, we wanted to be careful that we weren't just winking and giggling and having too much fun with it, you know, that it wasn't di- distracting from the narrative. And so uh, we, we, you know, we told our art department that we wanted to do it. And I think everybody got a little too excited at first where they, they were showing us like early drafts of ideas and they had like signage for like the downtown Ludlow and they had like Danny Torrance's Realty, you know, and like. Carrie White's prom shop, you know, they, they didn't have that, but it was like everything was like a cute little <laughs> reference to another Stephen King yeah. book. And our whole thing was, look, we're only going to do this if there are things that actually fit within the universe, you mm-hmm. know. So if there, if Rachel Creed is driving up Route ninety five, and she needs to get there to Ludlow by about four thirty or five, and there's traffic. She's probably going to be passing Derry at about, like, it. 3 o'clock or so. Yeah. That, is, that is technically south of Ludlow, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was one thing. You know, Then it was like, uh, all right, Judd would have a map on his wall. What would that map really say, you know?
7: Mm-hmm.
5: Uh, so we were always, you know, Judd, Judd talks about Cujo in the book. Yeah. You know, he's talking about Castle Rock. It's another town. That, that is something that would actually happen. Yeah. You know, so all the Easter eggs were things that, that could only really exist within this specific narrative. Were they there, were never jumping the shark of the narrative. Were there ones you had to cut out? Did we cut any out? No, but there's ones you probably haven't noticed yet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's there's what I was in there. Yeah. Yeah, I got to go for a rewatch to, to, to catch well, them. Are more. there other ones? I don't think what the other ones are. There might have been some that we cut. We did a lot more stuff with the ankle, where that's not an Easter egg, but we were being a little too cutesy with that. So, like, the moment that Judd gets the phone call from Rachel that she wants him to go check on Lewis, yeah. and he kind of, like, bursts out his front door, we had a moment where John, like, hesitates on the front lawn and looks down and realizes he forgot to put his boots on, and he's wearing slippers. Ah. And then he kind of has like a ah fuck it moment, and he just keeps going. It's like, what's the worst that could happen? Yeah, yeah, no, that's little things like that, you
0: know. And and I I was actually going to ask about that, in um, you know, because there are definitely some more visual references to the fact that like it almost subverts your notions of like, no, it's not going to be this and. I wondered if, was that something that the, the the two of you guys put into the movie or was that already, like, in the script? Um, you know, because it, it seems as if there is, it's like um, kind of like almost like inside baseball for fans in a way, you know, where you can be like, the fans, the diehard fans are really going to know this and the other, you know, people that are just watching this as a regular horror movie probably aren't going to recognize that. But um, was that something that, that was like the trademark of you two?
6: Um, putting that stuff in? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh... Yeah, this was not in the script, most of those things. This was stuff that uh, we kind of inserted along the way. But then, like, uh, you know, it was funny. Like, you know, I remember Dennis having to go tell the production designer or the art department going, like, yes, we want to sign. This is Derry and her own design. And then they're, like, off making it. and like, But, like, that was us just saying it to them, like, so it was never in the script. So, like, I wonder if there was any, like, producers or anywhere, like, looking over, like, the budget and going, wait, what's getting spent here? Because you're making a dairy road. <laughs> you
5: know, like, yeah. And we had set. set it set up, it said Jerusalem's lot first, like it does in the book. Yeah. So, and then we, I, you know, I saw Castle Rock, the TV show, and there's an episode where he actually yeah. goes to Jerusalem's lot. I was like, God damn it. <laughs> so then we're like, should we really make a dairy? Is that too? Come on. And we were just like, ah, fuck it, do it. You know, people, people love it. She would be passing dairy at that time of the day. Let's do it. No, and, I love it. So I, that, was I all, love that was all discussion.
0: Um, you know, we've really been just dreaming up of like a Stephen King universe and I, I feel like this is the closest we've really ever gotten in the um in the past few years just the the the, the newer shows that have that sort of embedded um, you know, lived-in feeling of like there are other worlds in these um in Stephen King and and that's what I just love about the new films that have been coming out and Many made me wonder, like, why do you feel Stephen King is so popular now versus 10 years ago? And why do you feel so many people are doing it right?
6: Well, I feel like things are just sort of uh, generational, like how Dennis was saying, you know, the movie could be made another 30 years from now. I just think, um, and maybe I'm wrong, but, like, I worked. At, I've worked at bookstores, and I've seen people come in with their summer reading lists, and I'd see, like, Stephen King on there and, like, you know... And I, I'd always be recommending to the kids, get this one, you'll love it, you know. Like, uh, but they would always want to go for the skinniest one, and Stephen King wasn't skinny, you know. So they'd be getting like the Old Man of the Sea or something, and I'd be like, I'd be like, T- I'm, tr- I'm tr- telling you, get the Stephen King, but uh, not to you know, Old Man of the Sea is great too. But uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But but uh, but I'd always be going like, oh no no, you you you'll love it, get Stephen King, uh, but uh, so like to get back to the question is like, I feel like he's always around. I mm-hmm. just feel like, you know, kind of like if you look, however many years ago, we all had the, we still had the Stephen King movies. Like, I feel like people were still reading Stephen King and like, and the the movies that were made from Stephen King's uh, novels were still like, you know, they're still like obsessively watched by cinephiles. And then like, I think it's just a matter of like, distance and time where, you know, like now there's a new generation of kids that might not know those things. So like, so there's sort of like a new renaissance of his work so that a new generation of kids can go to the movies and go, oh, oh wait, this was based on a book. And then maybe they go to the store and they buy the book that it was based on, or they go back and they go, oh, there was an- another movie adaptation in the past. And they go back and they watch that. But I think like, I don't know, and maybe I'm wrong, but my thing is I, I just think, you know, like, yeah, we've hit that point and Again, the success of it, you know, when it's, mm-hmm. it's when something's successful, people want to make more, you yeah, know. So, uh, yeah. but like, so I don't know. So, as far as if he wasn't relevant a couple years ago, I, I don't know. But I feel like I feel like he always is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I just think that maybe, you know, somebody was making a movie from one of his books. It it ended up doing really great, and then all those things that were in development are finally getting pushed through. But, you know, I think that could have happened at any time. You know, any one of his adaptations could have been the breakout hit, and then everyone would have been greenlighting their things. You know, it's just a matter mm-hmm. of, I just think it was the timing of it that pushed us into this renaissance. But I think it could have happened at any time, because I i think he's always relevant,
0: you know. Totally, totally. Um, what are some of your earliest memories of Stephen King around that topic?
5: <clears throat> uh, probably the movies, you know. Yeah. Uh But uh, as far as reading goes, uh, for me, it was a weird one. I think I was homesick with like mono for like a month, you know, so I don't know, (laughs)
7: 12
5: (laughs) or even younger than that. And uh, my mom had a copy, like a mass market paperback of uh, The Gunslinger for some reason, which doesn't seem like a book like my mom would normally read. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I'm trying to imagine my mom reading that. A Nora Roberts book or something, but uh, <laughs> so I uh, I was intrigued by the cover and the you know the the title you know and Stephen King and so that was actually the first book of his that I read, which is sort of a like a weird abstract one to begin with you know,
7: mm-hmm.
5: and then uh, you know the fuse is lit you know and then it was like Misery, The Tommyknockers. I I didn't really fo- I follow chronology. I just sort of jumped all across the map, and I think Pet Cemetery was probably one of the first five that I read you know, yeah. and then as far as movies go. For for me, it was probably Stand by Me was one of the earliest ones. You know, and that was the one that really got me wanted to go out and adventure and like yeah. take my buddies, you know, our neighborhood and like walk down the train tracks and go explore the you know the nearby neighborhoods and go on an adventure. You know, yeah. And then like probably the first scary one was The Shining, and I and I mm-hmm. I don't think I was even able to fully watch it as a kid because I was so frightened of the the Grady twins that it took me a while before I really finally had the nerve to watch the whole movie. No, totally. <clears throat>
7: Yeah, uh,
6: for me, it's uh, not really sure what was uh, first as far as which book I read, Um, but I think the one that stands out to me is Carrie. Uh, I remember, you know, I'm the youngest of six kids, and I remember as a kid, my older siblings watching Carrie in the other room, and I was hiding in the dining room, peeking in and watching the, you know, the final confrontation between Carrie and her mom and, uh, and just a lot of those images sticking with me. So I remember, whether it was the first one I read or, or not, I'm not positive, but it definitely was one of the first ones I remember, like, seeking out because I remembered catching bits of, those movie, that, of that movie. And it's definitely one of the first ones I remember leaving a lasting impression on me.
0: Yeah, What would you say is uh, your favorite book
5: looking back now on either? Uh, for me, it's always been The Stand. Nothing, you know, yeah, I, I, I've only ever read it once, but I mean, like, I it, it's going to be tough to top that one. I, I think I cried, like, yeah. constantly when I read that book.
6: Yeah, I can say the same thing, too. I only read it once two uh, years ago, so it's funny, like, uh, the other day talking about movie adaptations of his, I, I had a similar thing where I go, like, okay, I'm going off of just pure memory here, you know, <laughs> not, like, something, something that I've read recently, but, like... But I'm gonna go out on a limb and say, yeah, the stand as well, because I remember reading it and just thinking, yeah, it was epic, you know. Yeah, yeah it's just master.
0: And that, that miniseries happened like right at a perfect time for me. I, I was born in '84, so I was around like 10 years old when the the miniseries came out, and I remember just being kind of shocked and bewildered at like, I mean, I, there were post apocalyptic you know movies or pop you know apocalyptic movies at the time, but to be on like major network television was just such a big deal. And there's something about that story that has stuck with me and like scenes from it that even if I look back now and I go, okay, that's kind of hammy, but it still scares me (laughs) because I had those, I was just seen in adolescent eyes and um, yeah, the stand definitely sticks with me as well. Uh, It's, it's, there's just something about there's something so relatable about it, even though it's one of the more epic fantastical stories he has. Um, And i don't know are you are you two trying to get are you gonna have you ever talked have you talked to cbs all access and trying to get involved in next year or next year's uh or this year i don't know when it's going to be released but the adaptation they're doing
5: yeah uh <clears throat> friends of ours are involved in it there are producers on it and so we've uh we I, I i saw jill killington she's what she's in the writer's room i think she's a producer on it and she uh we said we, we we're interested. <laughs> we yeah. would love to do an episode. So she's been talking this up to uh, Josh Spoon, the guy that you know, yeah. Who would be yeah. the uh, he would be the you know the main the main creator behind it, and uh, trying to get him excited about us possibly doing an episode. So that you know, no promises on that, but that that could be fun. Thank thanks you so much. It. Seriously. Yeah. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, thank you. That was fun. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. No. We'll talk soon. <laughs> Have a good
6: All right. One. All right. Great. Thank you. Bye. <gasps> Oh